Welcome to the Swamp Flex Podcast. My name is Brandon Day. I'm Brittany Lombas. I'm Hannah Rassanen. And I'm James Cohn. And we are recording in three and a half <laughs> separate locations in New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, we're trying to stay safe this week. Everyone's been exposed to random um, cold and flu and COVID scares over the past week. So we're going to record separately. Uh, this is going to be a lengthy episode, obviously, because we are counting down our top films of 2021. Uh, total, we're going to talk about 26 movies today. Oh <laughs> And of those 26, 19 of them were only on one of our lists. So uh, we are kind of all over the place this year about like what movies we thought were the best or, you know, our personal favorites, whatever metric you went with. Mm -hmm. So I guess we should keep it quick up top. But does anybody want to make any like grand statements or like summaries about like your experience with this year's crop of movies or like how you went about making your list? Was there anything different about 2021? That wasn't already happening in the post-COVID world of 2020. The big thing for me when I was like making this top list, I have no idea if this is has anything to do with COVID, but it was so easy for me to do like the top five, but it was so mm -hmm. hard for me to do like five and below, which really shows like in my mind, there were just like strong movies that I liked throughout the entire year. And they, they stayed in my mind as those you know, strong top movies. And then there was a bunch of other ones that were like pretty okay and pretty good. And it was hard for me to be like, I mean, they were, it was good. I don't know if it's better than this one or better than this one. It was good. So I, I just think there were a lot of pretty okay movies that came out this year. Yeah. I had a hard time. Um, I feel like I liked a lot of movies, but there were no, like I didn't have a front runner really. And I feel like, my top 10 could very easily be totally different halfway through 2022. Like I could revisit a lot mm. of these movies and completely rearrange them. There were also some movies on the festival circuit that haven't had a wide release yet. Like Celine yeah. Sciamma's new film, Petite Mama. I want to see that so badly. And I feel like that would be a top movie for me, just based on the descriptions I've heard of it. I'm counting that one and the uh, Almodovar Parallel Mothers as 2022. Yeah. Like, yeah. They haven't reached New Orleans yet, so. Yeah, right. <laughs> for our purposes. That's what I'm, I'm going to do. But I was just like jealously looking at other people's lists. Um, and then there were some, there was one movie in particular, um, which didn't make my top 10 just because I saw it at Sundance. It was on the festival circuit and it's being released in January. And it's, um, we're all going to the World's Fair. And I really loved it when I watched it, but I couldn't rewatch it. And I'd watched it so early in the year that I could, like, barely talk about it in specifics. And I was like, well, I don't know. I don't feel like I can put it on my top 10 if I can't really revisit it. So I don't know. It was yeah. just like a kind of disorganized year for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I kind of agree with what you guys just said about. For me, it was pretty easy to pick the top four or five. And then, like Brittany said, after that, it was kind of all over the place. But I thought overall, it was like a pretty good year for movies. And what was interesting for me was like going back to the theater, which, um, you know, since like July or August, I've been going, seeing movies at the theater on a pretty regular basis. And that's, I don't know. It kind of is nice to be back in a theater. 
Um, yeah. And there, there's a couple movies, uh, none that made my top 10, but like, like Dune, for instance, and Suicide Squad. Like I have really fond memories of seeing those because I got to see them in the theater. Um, so that's yeah. something that I look forward to in 2022 is uh, more movies at the theater. I'm in the same boat as everyone. I saw probably like seven or eight movies in the theater over the course of the year. And I was very selective about what I would go see. Um, and pretty much all of those trips to the theater resulted in some placing on my top 20 list. And then I only over the course of the entire year rated five movies over four stars. And those were like very easy to wait at the top of the mm -hmm. list in the same way y'all are saying. So like I have a very strong top five and then I have a bunch of like four star movies that I really liked and I could not really balance which ones were more important to me. At, at least at first glance, it took like a while to organize that, um, which is where you get really nerdy at the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it sounds like we're on the same boat and it sounds like we could have saved everyone a lot of time if we just stuck to our top five films of the year. <laughs> since those are the ones we apparently felt very strongly yeah. about, but I think... At least there's going to be a widespread of films released in 2021 that a lot of them are widely available right now. So this is a good recommendation machine. Mm. Uh, and there are plenty of recommendations coming your way. Yeah. And all that's coming up to you right now. Oh, greatest of kings, indulge me in this friendly Christmas game. Let whichever of your knights is boldest of blood and wildest of hearts step forth. Take up arms and try with honor to land a blow against me. Whomsoever nicks me shall lay claim to this my arm. Its glory and riches shall be thine. But thy champ must bind himself to this. Should he land a blow, then one year and yuletide hence, he must seek me out yonder to the green chapel six nights to the north. He shall find me there and bend a knee and let me strike him in return. Be it a scratch on the check or a cut in the throat, I will return what was given to me, and then in trust and friendship we shall part. Who then? Who is willing to engage with me? So we're going to start with our outlier picks. These are movies that were only on one person's list. 13 of the 19 outliers that we had were split between me and Brittany. <laughs> So like, oh my god! <laughs> this makes sense functionally. Like James and Hannah, y'all watch a lot of movies together. Right. Brittany and I are on our own separate planets, <laughs> but y'all do have a few picks mixed in here as well yeah. uh, between the two of y'all. So we'll get more to your favorite movies later, but you'll get to weigh in in the meantime. Uh, and we're gonna start untraditionally. Usually we start with James, but Brittany, your number ten oh. was on no one else's list. Really? So we're gonna start with you today. Okay, so. Well, my number 10, and I think there's a movie similar to it that probably is on other folks' lists, but um, but my number 10 is uh, Gaia. Um, so Gaia is the South African eco-horror movie that was directed by Jaco Bauer. I'm probably botching his name, but he did a lot of like television directing, not too much in the film realm. So this is kind of one of the, the very few um, films that he directed. Um, but this is an eco-horror movie, and a lot of folks, when I talk about uh, Gaia, they're like, oh, are you talking about In the Earth? 
which I haven't seen, <laughs> so I can't compare the two, but I know that some of y'all have seen it. Mm-hmm. They have the exact same plot. Like They're both about research scientists in the woods who get a foot injury, and they get kidnapped by eco-terrorists and held hostage. And they're magic mushrooms. Are there mushroom Yeah, mushroom people? spores in the air. That's the difference, is Gaia has its own special creature, oh. whereas... Um, in the Earth is more of like a axe wielding slasher movie. Okay, <laughs> so they're a little different, but well, a lot of overlap. I guess we at some point it would be great to dig into like how did these like did somebody copy something or is this just like some kind of magical thing that happened in the movie world? You know, but this film starts off where there's two park rangers in South Africa and they're going into this forest to retrieve a drone that they lost, and the female park ranger gets injured in this trap and she finds shelter in this house that's inhabited by this father-son survivalist duo. Um, and they're a little bit a little bit wacky, <laughs> to say the least. Ooh. And at the same time, her partner that she, her park ranger partner that she got separated from, he's lost and he's looking for her. And both separately, they realize that there are these mushroom creatures lurking through the forest. And they kind of look like the creatures from Stranger Things a little bit, the television series. Mm. But they're these like mushroom, spooky mushroom people, not cute, not fantasy, whimsical. They are terrifying. And they can't see you, uh, but they can hear you. So I guess it's sort of like they look like the Stranger Things thing. And it kind of is a little bit like the creature qualities from the quiet place Mm. i guess that also that reminds me of the last of us and like the cordyceps um mushroom that kind of infects like that's a there's this video game called the last of us and it's like a post-apocalyptic survival game and they have it's this like fungus that has infected people and they have that they can't see they like make click sounds to find people anyway uh very very cool that's what's happening here this is crazy wild so the the survivalist father-son duo, they know about the mushroom people, right? And they are prepared. They know how to, like, not get caught up in whatever the hell they're trying to do. Well, her partner gets just immediately swallowed up and, by these spores that are released. And he, like, becomes this, like, mushroom thing. So what happens is the mushroom people were once people, but the spores got to them and they became mushroom people. Mm. And... She is like, you know, recovering from this foot injury and then she keeps having these like weird moments where she looks at her arm and there's mushrooms growing on it and then she comes out of it and it's gone. So it kind of takes over her body a little bit more on the slow side compared to her partner. The ending goes on this weird, like cheesy route that doesn't make sense with the rest of the movie, but I love it for doing that. So, yeah, I'm not going to talk about it because I think you guys would enjoy it and the surprise and how ridiculous and amazing it is. Um, but, yeah, I I like this movie a lot just because it was, I mean, other than being a fun time with some badass visuals, there was just a lot of suspense and buildup um, throughout the whole thing where you just feel anxious the entire time you watch it. And the body horror is, like, phenomenal. Mm. So. Great. Yeah, those mushroom creatures are really cool. They look like um, they'd be like in a Bjork music video uh, or something. Beautiful. Yeah. Like the kind of half mushroom, <laughs> half person thing. Yes. She would love mushroom that. Mushrooms through the forest. I really liked it. 
it, it reminded me a lot of In the Earth, which I happen to see first. Uh-huh. And I feel like a lot of my thinking for the year on like man's relationship to nature and how we can communicate with like the old ways of like authentic living mm-hmm. had already been done with In the Earth. Um, but I just thought the creatures were so cool that like all the overlap didn't really matter that much. And it's more of like a slow burn than In the Earth. In the Earth is kind of wacky. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gaia is more art film, like beautiful photography kind mm-hmm. of stuff. They're good companion movies. I am fascinated by the cordyceps mushrooms. that like infects insects and makes them do all sorts of crazy things. And I love like infection post-apocalyptic stories, especially when there's like something natural overtaking people's minds. So mm-hmm. I've not seen it, but I would love to see it. That is definitely up my alley. All right. Well, Hannah, uh, your number 10 and your number nine were outliers. Oh! And they're both kind of musical picks. They have like a little synchronicity going on. Yeah, there. that's true. Okay, so I think I talked about my number 10 on another episode at one point. It was one of the movies that I had watched recently. It was um, Summer of Soul. And again, it's the kind of documentary footage of the Harlem Music Festival um, in 1969 produced by Questlove. And um, I just, I had to put it in my number, my top 10, because I felt like it was a really important kind of landmark historical moment. And I, it it made a really big impact on me the first time I watched it. I watched it a second time. And, you know, it's like, you've already seen all the musical numbers, and you kind of know how it goes. So it wasn't as impactful the second time. But I just felt like it was such an important movie that I had to put it in. Um, And then number nine is Emma by Pablo Lorraine. I think that's Mm -hmm. how you pronounce his name because he has a little um, accentuation on the eye. I believe he's a Chilean director or at least the um, film takes place in Chile. It is about a reggaeton dancer named Emma and she is um, it's, it's kind of like a psychological drama it reminded me a little bit of climax visually um does not have the kind of like mayhem violent breakdown that um, climax does but it's about this woman who has an adopted son with her partner gaston who is played by um gail garcia bernal um he uh sets his aunt's face on fire and so they give him up for they put him back into adoption basically so he goes to a foster home and emma is kind of like she has this kind of violent selfish undercurrent she's very she's a very passionate dancer um and she is kind of trying to spend the rest of the film getting him back um in this like very these very strange machinations with um his two foster parents Uh, Basically, she's uh, seducing both of them. Um, I thought this was a very interesting movie. And I really, I don't know if anybody else has seen it, but I thought the very last scene was especially interesting. And I'm not sure exactly what it means, but it kind of throws the rest of the movie into a different light. Um, It also features like 
uh, some very cool uh, flamethrower stuff. She just puts a, a thing of propane <laughs> on her back and like lights a bunch of shit on fire. So that sounds great. Yeah, it was very cool. Very interesting movie. I'm really jealous that you've seen it because it's had a very like long distribution mm-hmm. history. Like I think Mubi had it for like a one day <laughs> event uh, in 2020. Yeah. And that was the only way it was available to watch at home. And then it did a theatrical run in 2021, but never played in New Orleans. And I've had it on hold at the library since November, and it's still on order. Oh, really? Oh so like, <laughs> uh, I I know that I have two Pablo Lorraine movies on hold at the library. It's this one and Spencer. Oh, yeah. I don't know when either one's going to come in, but uh, I'm I've been most wanting to see this one. It's just it's just so hard to access for free. Yeah. But I think you can. Rented VOD. Yeah, right you now. can. It is available VOD, and it's. It wasn't exactly what I expected, but I, th- I thought that it was going to be like for some reason I thought there was going to be more violence, like it would kind of go more towards a climax, um, climax. But that doesn't happen. But I thought it was super interesting, and the dialogue between uh, the lead actress and um, Gael Garcia Bernal is like super over the top. They're just like having these very toxic fights um, and like their love lives are just all over the place. Bananas. Um, yeah. So I, I thought it was a pretty great, pretty good movie. Well, James, uh, your number nine is also an outlier. Is it? Yeah. Really? It's on a few people's longer lists, uh, but you're the only person that has it in their top 10. Uh, so my number nine is The Green Knight, mm. which I was talking earlier about seeing some films and theaters this year. And this is one that I, I think this is one of the very first movies that I saw in the theaters this year. And it was so cool to see this on the big screen because it is beautiful to look at. You know, it's a retelling of this 14th century story. I think Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. It's an epic poem. Yeah. It's kind of your, I don't want to say basic, but it's like a very simple hero's journey and the the whole film is kind of about what it means to be a hero in one's own life and i don't know i just thought it was it was beautiful i thought it had some really interesting ideas about like about manhood and what it means to kind of become an adult and i thought it was also extremely strange in some parts i mean there's like some kind of cuckolding thing going on there's like these giant <laughs> these giant mythical creatures that come out of nowhere that looked absolutely gorgeous on the screen and uh mm-hmm. the way that the story resolves itself i thought led to some interesting discussions and kind of reflecting back on the whole movie so yeah i, I don't know i thought it was epic obviously it was grand it felt huge and um, it, it, and it was really great to see it on a big screen. So that's probably why it was maybe a little higher up my list than uh, some other people. But yeah, The Green Knight. I thought it was like very metal, mm-hmm. especially the uh, opening Christmas uh, mm-hmm. Eve celebration. Like I remember there's this shot of someone on a throne and they just catch fire. Yeah. It was like one of those metal images I saw on screen all year. Yeah, there is a lot of like, just badass shit in this movie. But it is like very slow too. Like it really takes its time to kind of, 
there's a lot of like world building, like you really feel immersed mm-hmm. in this, you know, kind of strange land. So yeah, it, it definitely was metal. It feels a little bit like applying the like A24 horror aesthetic to fantasy mm-hmm. cinema instead of horror. And it works really well, just at, at least in like the individual images you get out of that combination. Yeah. There's a lot of like just individual frames that stuck with me even more so than the like story. Especially all like the beheading stuff is very A24. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> the way they did that. So this is on my top 20 um, for sure. And I watched it around the holidays and I, I wanted to put it on and my mom was like, we're only watching Christmas movies. And I'm like, well, I want to see this. And then they're like the great Christmas game. And I'm like, well, shit. It's, <laughs> this is a fucking Christmas movie, Mom. <laughs> and, I, and I will say that, um, what's his name? Dave Patel, the main actor. Yeah. He's becoming like one of my favorite actors. Like everything I see him in, I end up liking. Mm-hmm. I just watched him on Skins recently, um, and he's like a scrawny little child on that mm-hmm. show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so like watching him as this big buff sex symbol in The Green Knight was yeah. very jarring. Now he's just like, you know, <laughs> covered in freaking semen. But yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> Brittany, this Going is kind of a Christmas movie. <laughs> yeah, oh, no. definitely. You know? There's two Christmases. Yeah. <laughs> Twice as many Christmases as a normal movie. <laughs> exactly. It's doubled. But it, it felt like a good holiday movie in general because, like, sometimes there are movies you watch during the holidays that have nothing to do with it, like Lord of the Rings and mm. the Harry Potter series and things like that, just because there are these huge epic movies that are just great to watch during a holiday anytime. Yeah. And I think this is kind of one of them. Right. Like, you have the time to sit down and watch, like, four Harry Potter movies if you feel like it. Exactly. And now you can throw the Green Knight in there. Yes. And the last thing I wanted to say to Brandon's point about how A24 is kind of branching out, like I saw a trailer for, oh, what's it? It's like everything all at once. Yeah. Yeah. The new film from the Daniels who did uh, Swiss Army Man, which is a very goofy movie. Yeah. But I like that A24, you know, they were known for their like elevated horror films. And now seems like they're branching out into like fantasy and then with that into like kind of action comedy it seems like i like that they're expanding the kind of films that they make yeah well my number nine movie was not on anyone else's list um it's also an a24 movie and i think it's also kind of a dark fairy tale in the same way that the green knight is uh it was zola oh yeah uh, (laughs) nice it's kind of this road trip to the hell pits of Florida. Uh, this stripper named Zola Moon makes friends with a waitress who also strips. No, she's a waitress and she makes friends with one of her customers. And mm. She's kind of seduced into this road trip to Florida to make money in a couple strip clubs and then finds out once she's already away from her home and like in someone else's car and no longer in charge that um, they're also supposed to be hooking on Backpage, which is like a Craigslist type service. And she did not sign up for that. And basically the movie is her just sort of trapped in this never ending road trip in the hell <laughs> and trying to find her way out of it. Um, it was adapted from not a epic poem, but a series of tweets. Uh, and I did not read that Twitter thread when it happened, even though it's probably the most infamous Twitter thread of all time. Uh, it's got like New York times articles written about it instead I watched this movie completely blind. I had no idea where it was going. And I was just floored by it 
in that it is very like visually beautiful. All the costuming has this like high femme, mm-hmm. fast fashion kind of like absurdist imagery to it. And then I said fairy tale because there's all these like fantasy like mirror realms when they're like getting ready to go on the strip stage there's just like beautiful harp music playing mm. while they're like putting themselves up and trying on different outfits and like who am i gonna be today uh like what fantasy am i presenting to these like strip club patrons but because i had no idea where it was going other than zola live to tweet about it i was also just terrified the mm. entire movie like just completely like throat grip scared <laughs> for her safety the entire film. So it's a really fun, beautiful, like, movie that makes sex look really grotesque and absurd uh, from someone who's not horny and watching all these, like, horny cretins crawl all over each other. Uh, and also just, like, scarier than any horror film I watched all year. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was real people mm. going through this sort of chaotic whirlwind. Yeah. Um, I know that y'all were more split on it, right? Uh, Hannah and James were kind of, like, half and half on this one. Yeah, I... I really like your description of it as like a dark fairy tale. I think that is the like the best version of of what this movie is. And it it does feel like very luscious and tactile and also like extremely off-putting in in some points. Like it's not I like that it wasn't really I mean it was glamorizing and deglamorizing sex work but taking it at a very like taking it at face value basically. Yeah, and I I liked all of the integration of social media. I thought that was done in a really fun way. Um, It really captured this like superficial world that serves as a veneer for this kind of like disgusting, scary underworld. Yeah, as like someone that grew up watching a lot of kind of trash TV like Jerry Springer, I mean, this felt like it was like a Jerry Springer episode, but like it was a nightmare (laughs) <laughs> but I, I agree that the cinematography was beautiful and I also agree with Hannah about the, like the social media stuff and the way it was presented was very cool I think it's sort of the way I felt watching a, another movie um, Red Rocket that we went to see recently like I really like these films that are kind of about these marginalized groups and the like underclass that treat it with humanity and like these are people these are sex workers people do this but they're still people but this one was much more of a like nightmare (laughs) so i i don't know i I did enjoy it the weird thing about both of those movies too red rocket and zola is that they're both very funny like you can describe how awful the main character is in red rocket and how he's like this like grooming predator And still, he makes you laugh the entire time that you hate his fucking guts. Uh, And in Zola, I was terrified the whole movie, but I was also laughing a lot. (laughs) It's it's a very strange series of uh, events that, like, kind of jar you, where, like, you're both, like, frightened and you have no choice but to laugh because there's sort of, like, sinister randomness of what happens. Yeah. I watched this movie last year called Mary is Happy, Mary is Happy from 2013. And it was this um, adaptation of this anonymous teen girl's Twitter account from like her first thread all the way up to her last. And in that one, the things that she tweets don't really have anything to do with each other. Like they're sort of like random thoughts the way that Twitter used Mm -hmm. to be. So like 
every new thought would change the direction of the narrative and like reshape the reality of the movie. And it felt like this is kind of the same thing. Like every new Twitter notification that comes in through the audio is just like, and then this happened and then this happened. And like that constant shifting just kept me on edge the whole movie and kind of captures the like, just sort of weirdness of reading a social media thread. Like it's, it's hard to capture that like chaotic energy. I think both of those movies do it pretty well. I do think that, um, you know, we're talking about the the epic poems. I, I kind of feel like that is becoming the modern equivalent. Like people are not, um, I mean, people are still writing, you know, epic works of art, but people are so much less likely to pay any attention to it. But you can go down a Twitter thread rabbit hole for hours. And like, um, there's this comedian, Adam Ellis, who did this fake ghost story on his Twitter for like several years. So he would have just like, he would dedicate a couple of tweets, maybe once every two months to like, oh, this, you know, I keep having these dreams about this, this boy named Danny. And like, oh, my cats are like standing outside of my door. And now they're adapting that story he told over the course of several years into a movie. Like people are really starting to plumb the internet for creative inspiration, and I think it can it can go well and it, it can also go pretty badly. It always excites me, even when it's yeah. bad. I'm like, Ooh, the internet <laughs> on the big screen, this is amazing. <laughs> well, Brittany, uh, your number eight was also an outlier. Really? <laughs> I'm not shocked by that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm being an ass. Um, <laughs> so my number eight. Is the woman in the window oh, no. by Joe? Re- <laughs> directed <laughs> We're gonna get by into it again. Are we? I don't know. Um, we will. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I initially watched this movie around the time that we did our Vertigo episode, and it it's known for doing Hitchcockingness very very badly. So. <laughs> When I watched it after we saw like Hitchcock done very well, I just had so much fun with it. Like I did not take this seriously. I don't think it's a movie that is one to be judged on how well like the cinematography is mm-hmm. or the plot or anything that matters really for movies <laughs> for the most for the most part. But it's well, you're you're judging it more on a lifetime scale. I, yeah, oh, yeah, on the lifetime scale, and it's so good it reminds me so much of like it's a total throwback to like a 90s thriller and i don't know i I just i've watched it multiple times and i love it i can't get enough of this movie and and i think that's why i love it so much is that i there's this huge part of my heart that belongs to like lifetime and made for tv trash and and this goes into it so well and it's such a, a good time. This is a movie like if you're if you have like friends over and you're drinking, throw this on and it's a blast. It definitely feels like for moms who like to get white wine drunk. Mm. Like that's the perfect audience. I know. I never thought I could be a mom until I watched this movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe this whole mom thing is for me. I know. I'm like hmm, maybe I could hang out with the white wine moms, the rosé moms. For we'll, we'll go yeah. to we'll go to brunch the morning after we get rosé wasted watching the woman in the window. So, real quick, this film is 
about an agoraphobic woman played by Amy Adams. And she has this massive, like, fabulous brownstone in Manhattan, which the whole time I'm like, how can you not work and live there? How do you pay for it? I don't know what's happening. But it's beautiful. And it's got this weird eeriness to it. Um, just by the the way that the wall the walls have these very deep like green viridian colors and things like that, but she watches her neighbors. She's a total agaphor like agoraphobic creep, and I love that. <laughs> like she's a fucking peeping tom, and like watches her neighbors and calls the cops whenever she sees something weird happening. So she starts to make friends with this new family that moves across the street. And the mother of the family is played by Julian Moore. And she comes over and hangs out with Amy Adams. And then (laughs) their son, they have a son who's supposed to be like, I don't know, 13 or 14. But he looks like, I mean, he probably, I don't know how old the guy is that plays him, but he looks like he's in his 20s. It's just so creepy when you have like a 20 something year old try to play like a child. And he's so good at it. But he comes over and she kind of gets matronly with him. And then one day she sees the mother of the family get murdered by the husband played by, um, God, what what's this nuts? Um, Gary. Oldman. Gary Oldman. So she witnesses this murder and calls the cops and then... They're like, well, no one's dead. The wife of this family is still alive. And when she sees the the wife, it's not Julian Moore. It's um, Jennifer Jason Lee. And she's like, am I losing it? Because she's also like wasted all the time. So she's like, am I drunk? Is this, I think I know what I saw. Nobody wants to believe me. Um, and then there's just like a really, really fun twist in the end of who the killer is. And it's, it's a blast. But yeah, and also, I think the camera work, I mean, beyond this being a trash heap that's a lot of fun, the camera work is super creative. There are these really weird moments where it looks like she's inside, like, a snow globe, and there's, like, black and white film playing behind her while she's sleeping. It, It's cool the way they layer things in this movie. But yeah, I mean, honestly, when I was making this list, I'm like, I, I watch this a lot. I really like it. It sits well with me. So it's number eight. Weirdly, I think those like um, surreal moments where she shows up in the movies, she falls asleep watching, mm-hmm. are like the best part of the movie, and also like its biggest Achilles heel because like she's watching really classic '40s and '50s noir films. She's watching like Gaslight and Laura and uh, Rear Window and stuff like that, and it's like, well, I am enjoying this lifetime trashy version of that, but I could also just be watching the real deal. <laughs> right. Like, those movies look better than this. It's giving you a tease. Right. <laughs> I do love, like, I think Amy Adams is a great actress, but this is one of her, like, totally unhinged roles. She's just, <laughs> I, I think I walked in on the last half of this movie while James was watching it, and she's, yeah, she's just like a mad woman. This and Hillbilly Elegy, she was also like totally unhinged. Oh, in that movie. I forgot about that movie. It was, mm. uh, it was something. It was something. Yeah. So I know this is definitely one of James's favorite films. <laughs> yeah, I think this was my least favorite movie of last year. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the worst movie I saw by a, by a mile, really. And I watched a lot of movies. <laughs> 
What is up with that? First of all, the kid, he's not a kid. He's a full grown <laughs> adult with a huge head and like T-Rex <laughs> arms. And it's so clear from the second he's on screen what the twist is. Who's the killer? Oh, no. It I was didn't so know. in your face. Like, <laughs> I, what? I heard in the book no, I that thought, they do I a much better I thought it was the dad. Job. Oh, really? I guess. Well, now I have to read the book. I, the book sounds like it's a lot of fun. But I, yeah, I, I <laughs> kind of disagree that it was like a self-aware. Like, it was self-aware that it was referencing Rear Window and that it was sort of a pulpy story. But I don't think it went as far into like the so bad it's good that it could have. And to me, it just, yeah, it just made me want to watch all these other movies that it reminded me of. And it was just like a, a a poor copycat of like the kind of movies that I enjoy, but it was just done extremely poorly. And the end is absolutely ridiculous. It ends in like a cage match. It just, it, it didn't work for me at all. I mean, to each his own, because I'd rather watch this than Rear Window. (laughs) (laughs) Any day. Wow. Shots fired. Any day. I just, (laughs) it's way more of a good time. And well, there is something that might satisfy you both, which is that Netflix is releasing this uh, parody version of this movie. Yes. Uh, It's a series with Kristen Bell (laughs) called, like, The Girl Across the Street from the Woman in the Window. It's kind of like making fun of this and like all those other post Jillian mm-hmm. Flynn, uh, you know. Oh, like the girl on the train stuff. Right. Okay. Oh, that sounds yeah. like a lot of fun. <laughs> but see, if this movie had done its job or w- movie lived up to its potential, you wouldn't need to have that spoof. It should have just pretty much been that from the get go, and it wasn't. I actually think it took itself more seriously than it really should have. Well, James, your number eight um, also plays a little bit with uh, kind of soapy, trashy vibes as well. (laughs) (laughs) And kind of a silly on purpose uh, melodrama. Uh, And that would be Benedetta, the Mm. new movie from uh, one of my favorite directors, Paul Verhoeven. It is about a 17th century lesbian nun who has a very... Strange visions of Jesus, who is essentially telling her that she needs to go out and get laid. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and apparently it's based on a true story. This nun who was tried for heresy. And this is the latest in kind of late career Paul Verhoeven, where he's still Paul Verhoeven, but he's picking a little more, I guess, mature subjects. But the movies are just mm. as horny and kind of weird and crass as they've always been. Yeah, he's just dragging that mature subject matter down into the muck, which is wonderful. Yeah, and I I just love it. I love him as a director. I thought this was so good. It I'm a lapsed, well, Christian, but I went to Catholic high school and even I found scenes from this to be pretty blasphemous, which is always a good <laughs> good thing when even you know someone who's not religious can be like damn that is a uh crucifix dildo and (laughs) that is happening there were images of jesus in this that i have never seen before like he's like this like romance novel hunk Mm. 
Uh, and he's like wielding a sword, like a heavy metal badass. Uh, <laughs> like, I just never seen to pick Jesus depicted as this like hunky warrior before. Um, to the point where like, I actually got kind of disappointed when the movie tries to play both sides towards the end where it's like, maybe she's a liar. Maybe she's not, which I think works for the story, but a little superficial part of me was like sad that those visions of Christ disappear halfway into the movie. Yeah. Cause I, those I, are so fun. No, and I, I agree. I wish we could have had like two more Christ scenes um, and it would have really probably taken it up into my, my top five, but I just love what what he does in this movie. Like Hannah said, taking what should be like a really, you know, it should basically be like a modern version of like the devils that should take itself very seriously. And he brings it down to like a kind of B-movie trash level. And essentially he's worked in those modes his entire career, but usually it's the other way around elevating trash. And in this he goes the other way, and um, I really dug it. I, I I had a great time. I thought it was a blast. I really liked it too, and it get it got me angry at the Catholic Church again in a way that I haven't been in a while. <laughs> but like, as soon as Benedetta arrives to this um, nunnery as a child, this convent, they start teaching her to be ashamed of her body and of any experience of pleasure, and like any kind of like sensual like sensory pleasure that she could experience as a person who is alive she's told to like fear and despise that in order to like preserve her body for some next version of life that probably is not going to arrive and i was just like oh yeah this is why i fucking hate catholicism and this is why i hate the way i was raised well and that's uh, that's why the story is interesting though because it's like what if god actually wants us to experience pleasure what if that's like the way to get to God, not like the denial of pleasure? Like, I thought that was interesting. Mm. She was like my superhero, just being like, I, I didn't really care whether she was a liar or a true believer. Just her being like, well, I talked to God and he said, it's okay if I come all day long. <laughs> and, uh, I just found that like so thrilling. So even when the movie was playing with whether or not she like actually believed herself, um, I was still on her side yeah. as she got tyrannical towards the end. You know, she's also instituting some important public health measures in the wake <laughs> of a uh, plague. Mm. I guess she also kind of helps spread it at the end a little bit. But yeah, I mean, Church Benedetta all the way. Mm. <laughs> I'm a member. <laughs> well, I also had a very horny number eight myself. Uh <laughs> It was private chat, spelled PVT chat. This is something that didn't really come up when we talked about Uncut Gems a few years ago, but like the big discovery of that movie for me was Julia Fox, who plays Adam Sandler's mm. employee slash mistress in that oh, film. Yeah. She's made a huge uh, comeback, too, because she's um, dating Kanye West. She has had a very interesting week in the headlines yep. this week after I published my best of the year list praising Thanks, her Brandon. performances. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, was shocked to see her actually being highlighted in tabloid headlines. We're like, who is Julia Fox? <laughs> I know who she is. Thanks, Swamp Flicks, you know. <laughs> it's weird. Like, she has this very pouty, breathy, like, almost Marilyn Monroe style screen presence mm-hmm. that I don't feel like you see very often anymore. Mm-hmm. But she's also this, like, New York City artist type. Yeah. You know, has this, like, kind of hard edge to her. Um, and I, I just find her very fascinating as a screen presence. She was also in Soderbergh's movie this year, No Sudden Move, 
Mm. Um, as a mobster's girlfriend, which I guess is how she was cast in Uncut Gems as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But in private chat, she plays a cam girl dominatrix. And she is pretending that she lives in San Francisco, but she actually lives in New York City. And she has this client who is kind of this like crypto bro, super online gambling addict and porn addict who um, keeps feeding her more and more money because he's lonely and wants to just get past the like masturbating on camera part of their intimate encounters and get to this like actually being her boyfriend thing. Like he's like crossing a lot of lines Mm -hmm. and trying to like intimate himself into her life. And she uses that desperation to her own advantage at some point and screws him over. And then he actually starts stalking her in the street and they kind of keep one upping each other in this very manic way. It reminded me a lot of movies from the seventies and eighties about New Yorkers staying up all night on cocaine and making increasingly manic decisions. (laughs) Like a lot of great filmmakers have made those up all night movies like Scorsese and, um, the movie Mikey and Nikki we watched. Um, Oh yeah. Like a bunch of like movies where like, it's just like, go to bed. Stop doing this, please. Uh, and the only difference really is that all these characters are sort of like tied to their laptops. So they're still up all night in New York City and like, you know, seemingly coked out of their minds in this like manic psychosis, except they're on their computers at all times and like doing these like sort of OnlyFans style like private chat rooms. And I just thought it did a really good job of capturing what makes her interesting as a screen presence. Like, She's very, like, forceful in this film, but also playing this sort of, like, pouty, lovelorn, like, mistress mm-hmm. at the same time. And uh, I just found it really fascinating, sort of, like, modern update to that sort of, like, manic up-all-night cinema. Cool. I-, I don't think anyone else has watched this. I have but, not uh, <laughs> seen this movie. Nope. <laughs> I want to, though. I had never heard of it, and now I will watch it. If you're interested in Julia Fox as a screen presence, I think it's it's pretty good. The The one complaint I've seen is that um, the movie is like sort of sympathetic towards the client towards the end and like sort of like indulges his fantasy of them getting together. But what I would say to that is that um, the entire movie is about how intimacy doesn't exist anymore mm. and how mm. the illusion of intimacy is something that's bought and sold online. So like when it forces them into a physical space where they actually can have like in the flesh sexual contact, it maintains that um, modern barrier where they can't fulfill it in Mm. a traditional way and they continue their like online dynamic in a way that i found very fascinating Mm, so if if y'all ever do catch up with this i'd be curious what your reaction to it is because it's a little divisive cool i thought it was very good and Brittany, your number seven was also an outlier my number really okay (laughs) (laughs) okay so my number seven is the movie uh swan song which was directed, written, and produced by Todd Stevens. Um, he also directed another movie I like a lot called Gypsy 83 with Sarah Rue. That's an older film, right? That's from like the 90s. Yeah, from the 90s where her and her like little goth friend are like obsessed with uh, Stevie Nicks and going on their own journey. Nice. Yeah, it's really good. So this was the title for two movies that came out this year. And it's really funny because a lot of folks tried to watch one and they ended up watching this one (laughs) so one of one of the swan song films is a movie about a dying father who like replaces himself with a clone the other movie is about a gay retired hairdresser who escapes from a nursing home 
um, to do the hair of one of his clients before her funeral. So um, the one that I have as number seven is the latter. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought it was so funny because like whenever you Google Swan Song 2021, you'll get the trailer for the gay hairdresser one that's appended to the movie about the dead dad and the clone. (laughs) And it's so funny to me. Well, this film stars Udo Kier, um, and he's been in a ton of movies. He's always kind of like this cool, like, villainous type dude. He was in Suspiria and Blade and um, more recently Baccarat. And he's never really had, like, a lead role, but he has a massively lead role in this movie, where the movie just follows him, if anything, But he plays Pat, and Pat is this elderly gay man who's this retired hairdresser to the stars. And he lives in a retirement home in Ohio, like the most unfabulous place in the world. And he learns that a friend and former client passed away, and one of their things that they wanted was for him to do their hair for their funeral. So he escapes the home and he kind of goes on this quest across this like small area in Ohio to perform that task. It's this really beautiful journey. Um, And I love this movie so much because while it has like a slow, quiet pace, it really makes Pat as a character just shine because he has a loud personality and just a loud ambiance while everything else around him is super dull. And also there's not a lot of films out there about elderly gays. And it's cool to see this one kind of being there and kind of representing. And I've, I have a lot of male gay friends and a Majority of them love this movie. Um, some of them were like, oh, it was way too boring. And I'm like, yeah, I get that. <laughs> but um, I think a lot of, especially like my older gay friends, they really liked that this film existed and they found a lot of connections with him. Like, you know, the struggle that you go through and then coming out in the outside world now as an older gay man and just seeing how things have kind of changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's like kind of specifically about gay elders being left behind by like, youth culture and like how youth obsessed a lot of gay community events are. Yeah. And like how, you know, most of his generation died of AIDS and his family and his like clientele wouldn't actually socialize with him directly because he was gay in Sandusky, Ohio in the seventies and Mm eighties. Um, so like, what does he have left? You know? Right. Uh, (laughs) so yeah, I I could see how, if you're in that an older, like cis gay, demographic like it's speaking directly to you i know and after this i'm like everyone needs to donate to the the house of aging homosexuals stat because they do a lot of good work um with you know older gay men in the community this was actually inspired by a real life person so pat was a real life person that todd stevens met at a bar and talked to him and was just like super fascinated with his story and like had been trying to find a way to portray him as a character in his movies. Like, I think that there was like a pat character in the edge of 17 that Todd Stevens did, but it wasn't exactly what he wanted. And this was kind of like his thing where he's like, wow, this is perfect. This is what I wanted. This is the character I needed. He was portrayed so well by Udo Kier 
And it's just a, it's a good movie. And there's really cool scenes that I think are like so iconic that I think about all the time. Like he wears this really pastel green leisure suit with a hat and he's Hmm. in like a motor scooter on like the freeway, just like speeding through, like not giving a shit about anybody else behind him. The big scene that everyone loves in this movie is when he goes to a gay bar and he comes out with this giant chandelier hat where it's literally a chandelier on his head and performs like um, Robin Robin's like dancing on my own. And it's just a, it's like really beautiful scene. I don't know. And it's, it's happy and it's funny. It's just, it's, there's a lot going on in this movie. But I really, really liked it. Um, So yeah, it's my number eight. I have not seen this movie. It sounds like a lovely story. I'm also very interested in the other swan song. (laughs) So um, now I have two (laughs) movies to catch up on. The other one sounds a lot like Marjorie Prime to me, just the way it's described. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's also a, a Black Mirror episode that had kind of the same idea. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, you're making someone out of their, like, social media posts and then there's another movie that's coming out next year at Sundance that's like again kind of the same idea. I I like like dead uh, relative slash loved one <laughs> story. So I yeah. um, think that we should do like a a dueling swan song episode or something later on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm interested to see this just because I really like Udo Kier as an actor, mm-hmm. um, and you know usually he plays like. Minor role, you know, he's like a character actor, but I don't know, this sounds kind of cool too, because he gets to like be the lead and I believe he is actually gay. So to play this like older gay character as like an older gay man, I'm sure felt like a really good role for him. So definitely interested to see it. I liked it, but I didn't love it. But I will say his character is the best part of the movie. Like... The movie is built around mm-hmm. how amazing this persona is, yep. and it's right. Like it, it, it's like it's enough for him to be fabulous to build the movie around. Yeah, especially in the scenes where he is sparring against his old rival, played by Jennifer Coolidge. <laughs> like I could watch the Ugh. two of them go back and forth trying to one up each other all day. Yes, like if there's like a sitcom of their like competing hair salons. Like, I'd love this. <laughs> like, Sorted Lives. Oh, my gosh. I could just watch Jennifer Coolidge all day. I If I could have a recording of her just talking and listen to it all day, every day, I would do that. Just like what Brandon was kind of saying is, like, this movie, it just seemed more like a way for Udo Kier to express his himself and to show off his chops, if anything. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, because, and I will say, like, and that's a lot of the negative feedback about this movie is people are like, God, it was just so long and, you know, boring at times. But if you have that respect for him and, like, watch it more so to see him, like, showcase what he could do, it's really good. Mm -hmm. Nice. Well, my number seven and my number six were both outliers. And like uh, Zola and Private Chat, they're also both internet-based movies. Um, so I've uh-huh. definitely uh, got stuck in one topic so far. Horny internet. <laughs> horny and on the internet. Uh, my number seven is not horny. No, it's it's about teenagers. Uh, it's called Beast Beast. Oh, very non-horny uh, it's movie. It's kind of a gun violence melodrama, kind of like an after-school special style melodrama about you know guns 
and online culture and teenagers. This is a movie that I think would be very easy to dismiss because of what it's about. Like, I think we all know guns are bad. (laughs) We all know that, like, you know, lonely, white teenage boys are, like, especially dangerous to have access to weapons. You would expect this movie to be a school shooting movie, but the actual violence from that teen boy happens elsewhere in kind of an unexpected way. But I was really struck by the way this movie thinks about the internet and also the way it kind of conveys this like hyperkinetic, high style, like Gen Z youthfulness. There's three main characters who all have hobbies. Uh, one of them is really into skateboarding and drumming. Uh, one of them wants to be an actor. Like she's really into like drama kid kind of mm-hmm. um, after school activities. And the other one is really into guns. And he starts off the film doing these like very safe, like gun safety protocol YouTube videos in the woods that aren't getting a lot of attention. And because of the type of attention people get online, he's pushed more and more to be more dangerous and flippant with the guns. And eventually he becomes more and more violent because he's obsessed with his social status online and like whether or not he's getting attention and what kind of attention he gets basically jokerifies him yeah. <laughs> to put it in a very like oversimplified way. Like he just becomes more and more extremist based on the attention he gets. And I think the editing does a lot of the weightlifting here. Like the way that their three hobbies are sort of mixed together as if you're scrolling through an Instagram feed and they're all kind of the same, like acting class and drumming and doing cool skateboard tricks and also shooting an AK 47. Like, the way that it sort of like levels the playing field as if all those are like equally wholesome activities for teenagers to be doing feels a lot like what it's like to be online. Yeah. And then also once the big tragedy happens, the big like after school special thing happens, then there's this really like, I almost want to call it trashy, but it's like pulpy thriller denouement after that. where like the big event happens and then someone has to get their revenge. And the way they do it is they weaponize public um, opinion online. So, like, she realizes that he's become an online hero because of his, like, Kyle Rittenhouse-style, like, right-wing supporters. And she's like, how can I use, like, online public opinion against him to get him arrested for what I feel like is a travesty? Uh, And I think the movie um, is very smart about kids' presence online, like, what social media branding means for, like, this younger generation. Um, and also just, I don't know, in a year where Kyle Rittenhouse was celebrated as a hero and let off scot-free for killing people in the streets during protests about very legitimate police brutality issues like and racism issues. Like, I don't know, the movie has really stuck with me. And I've watched it three times now thinking like, oh, I was overhyping this the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the style like kind of overwhelmed me. And I'll watch it again and see the like cheesy uh, melodrama everyone else sees. And then like, I don't know, the three times I saw it, I was emotionally affected each time. And like, I really feel for the kids. They feel like real people to me. And uh, I'm just really taken aback by how smart it is about the internet. Yeah. Well, wasn't the skateboarding kid, isn't he actual like kind of famous on YouTube for his skateboarding videos? Or I remember reading something about that. I don't know that. That's That's interesting to me. Because uh, all that stuff felt like very authentic, all the videos of him doing tricks and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I I did see this earlier in the year, and I did like it 
I I don't know. There was a sense of like doom from the very beginning when you see the white kid, you know, playing with guns and you kind of know where it's going. You don't know exactly who it's going to be, but you know someone is going to get killed by the end of this movie. And that was kind of gripping to me. Um, I've only seen it one time. The ending, I felt sort of conflicted about, but um, the way you kind of described it makes me appreciate it a little bit more. It it was maybe just a little too like after school special guns are bad. Uh, It was pretty on the nose giving that message. But yeah, I thought the most interesting aspects was about how the internet has shaped young people's lives uh, in a pretty profound way. And my number six um, also I liked for very similar social reasons, uh, which is a movie we already talked about on the show. So maybe I could be kind of brief about it. When we did our mid-year, like, what are our favorite movies of 2021 so far? I made everyone watch Lapsus. Oh, yeah. Uh, And that one's got a very similar, like, social commentary thing. Like, it's about how the internet has made modern work and just daily life, like, fucking miserable. Especially gig work, like uh, DoorDash and Uber Eats and whatever other, like, modern gig economy day labor you could think of where someone just takes... um, one-off gigs on a like gamified app like it makes it look like you're playing pokemon go but you're actually like trying to earn your rent um (laughs) lapsus is set in the woods uh this sort of like working class joe schmo who um considers himself very like politically neutral uh takes up a job running cable for this new internet company uh called cabler and he's um linking up different like ominous looks like um, art installation, like metal cubes in the woods. And he does these like various hikes where he's like connecting these different cubes together with this wire. And he's competing against these automated bots that um, don't have to sleep and rest. So that he has to like work against jobs against these little robots. Um, and meanwhile, um, all these younger people who are like more aware of the way that, that they're being exploited and their labor is like being increasingly gamified against them or trying to radicalize him and make him come over to like a leftist cause and basically unionize and revolutionize their shared labor. Uh, and the movie I think has a lot to say about the way that like startups and disruptors have completely just made daily existence fucking miserable. (laughs) Um, it reminds me a lot of sorry to bother you, Mm -hmm. except it's not as laugh out loud funny. It's just more like, Oh yeah, that's so fucking true. Like it's a very like, um, satire of recognition you're like oh man this gets what's wrong about modern internet culture and modern like app-based gig work and i I thought it was just very smart and it's really like rewarding to think about at length like what individual events in the plot and different characters mean within that larger metaphor yeah and also think they did a lot of really interesting impressive stuff with a little bit of money like it, it looks like a very cheap movie but i think it designs this like sci-fi near future worlds with those limited resources in a very impressive way. Yeah. I think I think about this movie without realizing it like once a week, at least it it does feel like very, but it's, it's kind of an unconscious thing, but the cabler app to me is so evocative of like this, uh, capitalism dressed up in Candy Crush, basically. Like, and it's just so 
like heart crushing to think mm-hmm. about where we are. Um, but yeah, I think that more there weren't a lot of science fiction films that I really loved this year, which I was a little disappointed by because that's one of my favorite genres. But I think this one is extremely good and it also really gets into the heart of yeah like the gig economy apps like even even wag wag is depressing i tried to do wag for like two weeks and i could never get a dog walk it was very sad anyway yeah i thought this was a really really great 2021 film there's a really great running gag on the new season of search party where one of the characters is working on this app called seas that um is about eminent domain and turning people's private homes into business oh, God. uh into businesses <laughs> by using these like backwoods like laws and it just i don't know that's like another good escalation of like what that feels like mm-hmm. like every single thing that we have that's like private and like calming is being monetized right. and, and commodified yeah. Oh, totally yeah. very depressing well hana actually your number 5 is also an internet era um satire and also came up on our like best of the year list so far back in june oh yeah um, was this, this wasn't on any other lists? Um, it's lower on a, a few people's lists. Okay. So it might actually make Swamp Flex's top 10, oh. but, um, not, not for these purposes. Yeah. Um, so my number five was Inside, which is the, um, Bo Burnham comedy art hybrid special. Um, so, and we've talked about the, I think we had an entire episode about mm-hmm. the, where this was the cornerstone, so I won't go into it in depth, but it is basically... It's kind of like a comedy music video diary of Bo Burnham's year during COVID, which began kind of at the outset of January of 2020, when he was thinking about like restarting his comedy, his public comedy career. Um, so it starts out very optimistic. It's his mental health slowly degrades over the course of the episode and the songs become kind of more and more hopeless about personal um, identity and connection and kind of like the overall course of human civilization. Um, So this is not, it's definitely not a perfect film, but it connected with me very deeply, especially in terms of like the discussions of mental health and personal isolation. And obviously this chronic isolation that all of us are feeling And I just found myself coming back to the songs over and over again, Uh, especially Welcome to the Internet, which I think is, you know, like Beast Beast, I think it captures the whiplash you get when um, like snuff films are uh, as easily accessible as like cooking, you know, like pasta recipes. Uh, So this, I just could not not put this in my top five because it stuck with me for the entire year. Yeah, I think this is probably, for me, the like quintessential lockdown movie. I know that there's been a few other like, you know, lockdown pandemic movies. But I guess because this one happened like right in the middle of the pandemic. And it felt so like personal and true and real that even though for me, some of the songs were a little hit or miss, but like, it really captured how awful that that time period was and still is to some degree. Right. I like that uh, it came out around the time vaccines were 
like rolling out. So it's like, oh, finally we can like right. wash our hands of this and move on. And then like it's half a year later and I still feel like I'm in that fucking house with him. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I rewatched it recently and uh, it was still resonating. Like, oh, yeah, that's my daily existence. Right I now. love this movie, but like I I haven't watched it since we've watched it initially for the, the previous podcast episode. And I'm just afraid to watch it again <laughs> because I'm like, God, it's still accurate. And it's yeah. so like, that's why like, it's been harder for me to watch movies that like remind me of what's happening. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, but it's so important. And I think that this is such of every movie that that's been made that's trying to like be like a time capsule of what it feels like to be in the pandemic. Most of them are like horror movies or like, you know, those end of the world, like virus and cure blah, 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 movies. This one is like, it's it. It is it. Yeah. And I think the first or the second song is his like his revelation that he's going to heal the world with comedy. And it's like definitely self-critical, but you know, he's the first half of the um, special is more like his songs are attempting to be more comedic. And then there are these like ex- very sincere, earnest songs about how difficult it is to just be alive right now at the second mm-hmm. half. And I feel like I actually felt like those songs were very connective. And I know Phoebe Bridgers um, went on tour with that funny feeling that like the folk song he sings at the very end. And just like everybody was singing along at her concerts. It was like, it really struck this like emotional evocative chord that I, I had not ever gotten from his comedy since he was 18. So I don't know. I thought it was a very cool showing for him and yeah definitely still feeling everything that he was talking about unfortunately well james your number five is also an outlier and also very serious yeah so um i saw this really early in 2021 it's called the killing of two lovers Hmm. it came out at sundance i think in 2020 and it is now finally i think it's available on hulu so anybody can watch it now i like i said i saw it Months and months ago, and I think about it on a pretty regular basis. So it's really a story about about divorce and about a couple who's going through this breakup, but the husband lives down the road. He's still in his kid's life, and him and his wife have separated, and they've agreed to see other people. But really, she's, you know, she's seeing this guy that she works with. And the very first shot of this film, I think it's like the most brilliant opening shot of a movie I saw all year where the husband has snuck into the wife's bedroom. She's sleeping with this guy that she's now seeing and he's holding a gun and pointing it at them about to murder both of them. And he gets interrupted by his son or somebody uh, that goes to the bathroom and he hops out the window and then runs down the street back to his house. So from the very beginning, it's just like this threat of violence is lingering over the whole thing. And the middle section of the film is a really like brutally honest, heart crushing, you know, this couple trying to navigate, you know, going through this divorce and do we want to go through with it? Do we want to stay together? And he's trying to be a good father 
and they're trying to make it work and and then the violence again is always creeping in and by the end of the film there is a big dramatic violent scene that's not quite what I expected to happen so I just thought it was really tense I thought it was the cinematography is beautiful I think it is set in Nebraska or Montana or yeah it's like a it's a rural area kind of in the fall or like pre-winter so the trees are craggly um there's a lot of a lot of open spaces yeah and it's so another thing that has really stuck with me about this film is it does a lot of these like one shot takes where there's no cuts there's a beautiful scene in the middle of the film where him and his wife you know they're, they're going to have date night they're trying to repair their relationship and she basically cuts it off she's like no can't do it so they just drive around the block so the kids won't notice and the whole scene it doesn't cut once and the like tension in that scene is some of it's one of again one of my favorite scenes of the year and i just thought the whole story was beautifully told um a big kind of topic that i've noticed in my top five is like toxic masculinity seemed to be a theme in a lot of films this year and this one definitely explores that as well see i don't know if anyone else saw it but it it made a big uh impression on me i think one thing i loved about this film is that i and i think you kind of mentioned this like it plays with the tension that is obviously building in this very frustrated man that wants to like bring his family together And there are all of these moments where it could rupture into something and it doesn't, or it kind of like, he, he like channels his rage into something else so that his family can't see him. Like there's this one scene where they're at the park and he buys these fireworks for the kids to play with. And I just, and it's slowly zooming in on this firework that hasn't gone off yet um and he's trying to um he's trying to get it to go off and the kids are around and you're like oh my god this is going to explode these children are going to you know they're, they're going to be bleeding like they're gonna one of them is going to die or something and it's like that's how it feels every second of the movie <laughs> yeah Ugh. It, it's really intense because again when the first scene like, oh shit, something kind of like we were talking about with Beast Beast. It's like, oh God, something terrible is going to happen. And every single, it, it permeates everything in the movie. Even these like little moments that he's having with his children, just because there's no score and it's just these long uninterrupted takes and slow zooms. It's just like, you feel the dread uh, creeping in and, uh, I thought it was really effective. Well, Brittany, your number five and your number four are both outliers. (laughs) And they're both horror films, which is kind of our bread and butter on this show. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I guess number five, maybe, but number four, I'm shocked. But anyway, (laughs) am I like the outlier queen? (laughs) You and I are tag teaming it. (laughs) Yes, that's true. We have the same. So my number five is the movie The Night House. Oh, Oh, I love that movie. Yay. Oh, well, great. I'm glad y'all liked it. I loved it. It it almost cracked my top 10. It was very close. 
I love this so much because it has such an original plot and the, the atmosphere throughout this entire movie is just amazing. Um, like I felt so like claustrophobic and sort of trapped throughout the entire thing, but I was just like sitting in my bed, you know, and anytime a movie can do that to me, I am all for it. Um, so this movie stars, uh, Rebecca Hall and she plays Beth and Beth is this, a woman who lives in this fabulous home that her husband built for her. Um, and they've been married for like, I don't like, f- like 15 years. So she kind of knows him, you know, 15 years with somebody. That's a long time. And then he kills himself. He shoots himself in the head um, on the lake, on a boat in the lake outside of their uh, beautiful home. And she's going through this grieving process. She's drinking a lot. And she's just kind of confused about, like, what the hell happened. how Because she did not suspect how he was feeling. And she's kind of trying to put the pieces together a little bit. And at the same time, she's experiencing these supernatural occurrences in her home. And she suspects that it's her husband and his his spirit. And as she starts to go through her his things, she finds a lot of weird shit. Like, she finds these bizarre house plans. She finds books dealing with the occult. She finds um, a second house that he built that has a totally backwards floor plan. And some secret relationships that he had with women who looked just like her. So she's trying to figure out what it all means. And I was trying to figure out what the hell it all means. <laughs> because it's like, it, it's all like, you know what I mean? Like, as a piece of the puzzle they're all so creepy it's like man what is he doing with women like you like did he have some weird fetish like why would he build a house like that and what does what do all these like weird you know voodoo dolls and things like that have to do with anything like you're trying to piece it together yourself and then when you get to the actual answer it is wild it's so wild there's also like this like kind of lovecraft thing going on where like the actual structure of the house is almost like a spell that he's like casting. Yeah. It's like he's like conjuring something through the way the house is designed, which I, I found like so fascinating. That was one of my favorite parts. It's like the house itself and like the shadows in the house. The negative space. Yeah, like that was so cool. Especially towards the end when it goes batshit crazy. Like that was wild. It really <laughs> Yeah, that has stuck with me. Those images from within the house of the the negative space is uh, I've never seen anything like that. There are little things throughout the film that are creepy. And I just feel like with horror movies in modern times, like a lot of them rely on select scenes that to be really scary and for jump scares and this and that. And like this entire movie as a whole is what's scary. Like it's not pieces of it. It's not one part is really creepy and the rest isn't. It's just this entire like movie. (laughs) is so creepy i will say though there i saw this in the theaters and there were oh my god i think two or three there are a couple jump scares in this movie and they totally got me (laughs) i I literally especially the first one because i didn't really i thought it was going to be more of like an atmospheric slow burn sort of thing and then there's this crazy jump scare towards the beginning was one of the jump scares that you had one i like screamed was um whenever she's having this beautiful moment with the ghost and then the ghost. Oh my talks. God. Oh yeah. That, yeah. 
And I'm like, yeah, oh. I wish that scene went further. Like she almost fucks a ghost and then they pull away from it. I'm like, no, finish what you were doing. <laughs> <laughs> that was so fun. I know. And then it's like, oh God, I mean, I don't want to do any spoilers, but I mean, she fucks. Yeah, the- it goes somewhere else. Yeah, she it, fucks it, the wrong ghost. It's wild. But anyway, um, <laughs> like the few jump scares it does were totally effective. And I was like jumping out of my chair. And she's really good. I thought that she played that role very, very well. Like even her look, the long, like, you know, brown hair, the the rich lady at leisure that she mm. sports a lot. I, oh, so good. Lululemon. Lululemon girl. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's safe to say your number four film goes some crazy places towards the end as well. <laughs> so I, these were the the only hard time i had on my top 5 was these two and it wasn't even that hard i flip flopped them a little bit but you know staying on the horror train and kind of spooky house stuff um my number 4 is malignant yes so malignant the reason that like i love this movie is cuz it's like a throwback to like 70 80s like b horror movies but it has these really cool modern stylings to it and there's like a creation of this horror icon in this movie, Gabriel. You know, like it's just it's crazy to see something like this. Like I I can't think of the last time like a spooky thing became iconic. Maybe Annabelle, but you know, Gabriel's 10 times better than Annabelle, I think. And this movie too is like it has a lot of silliness to it, but it is such a fun time. It's like a roller coaster ride at like a haunted theme park. And I loved it so much. And I know that we all watched it and really enjoyed it as well. You know, I like, I struggled with where to put this on my list. Uh, It barely didn't crack the top 10. I think I put it like, it's in my top 20. But anyway, Mm -hmm. my, my struggle was like, the last 30 minutes of this movie Mm -hmm. are the most insane, batshit crazy (laughs) thing I've seen in a movie in quite some time and it was so jarring because the first hour of the movie feels like a very standard kind of horror film like mainstream horror yeah like a mainstream horror and I I don't want to say I was bored but I sort of was like okay I know what this is and where it's going and it totally subverts your expectations in that last 30 minutes yeah that's why this movie's so smart it does the baiting. It's like hey. yeah, and I just I didn't know how to judge it as a whole. Like, do I judge it just based on that last thirty minutes, or do I have to think about it in its totality? Um, and that was kind of my my struggle. I'm kind of in the same boat. Like a lot of the things that I love about it is how it's recalling like older '80s like splat stick, like very silly horror action comedies that don't get made very much anymore. But it's like, those movies are like that the entire time. Like, Dead Alive doesn't wait to get wacky until the last, like, 30 minutes. Like, it's just like that mm-hmm. the whole time. I think the problem, though, is, like, a lot of modern audiences turn their nose up at things that are, like, obviously silly. So, like, it kind of needs to be below-the-radar normal horror film to get people to watch it in the first place now. Um, so, like, it's probably for the best that the movie, like, holds itself back a little bit. And get, gets very silly towards the end. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm also struggling with that as well, where it's like, I kind of wish it was just batshit crazy from start to end. Yeah. But, but then also, maybe it wouldn't have been as effective, you know? Exactly. Yeah, I, I like it as a prank. Because yeah. it, be, it, it it's so memorable because it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> where 
oh, if I could go through. So there are a few moments in film and, you know, reading books that I like treasure and I can never recreate. Probably the biggest one would be when I'm reading um, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone and you get to the platform and nine and three quarters chapter. It's just that first feeling is just explosive. And probably the second biggest one like that for me is the reveal of Gabriel. You know, I <laughs> you ca- I can't go back and have another first, mm. <laughs> but it was so good. Yeah, other movies like The Orphan or The Boy that like really have a good like last minute prank <laughs> that like really ratchet up the fun. And I just love the well before Gabriel is revealed, how like we think that Gabriel is this like long black haired goth crab walking thing that <laughs> that lives in an attic somewhere and then nope 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 but yes i i thoroughly enjoyed malignant and it is definitely gonna go down in horror movie history well uh my number four my number three and my number two are all outliers so i'll try to <laughs> run through very quickly <laughs> Uh, my number four was The French Dispatch, which is the newest film from Wes Anderson. It's probably the one that most people know about in the world. Like, there's really no reason to, like, promote this film. It's, you know, it's a Wes Anderson movie. It'll probably get a Criterion release, release in, like, six months. So I don't know how much promotion you need for right. it other than to say I was surprised by the reaction of the film in that everyone was, like, kind of tired of Wes Anderson's shtick, it felt like. It's like, oh, he's just doing, like, his own thing harder than he did it last time Mm -hmm. and like kind of shrugging it off for that. It is a anthology comedy set in this fictional town of Ennui, France, (laughs) which is a very like whimsical twee setting. But what I think is really smart about it is how Wes Anderson is kind of commenting on his relationship to his audience. Uh, The magazine that the movie is, mimicking kind of like a new yorker magazine mm-hmm. it's got like a cutesy intro and then three main articles and then an obituary is like the structure of it so it's it's laid out like a magazine layout that is published in kansas in like nowhere kansas as like a newspaper insert so like there's this very hoity-toity setting but the audience is in middle America. Mm -hmm. And I think that is very smart about what Wes Anderson means to cinema. Like I've loved him since I was a teenager and it was because I felt like I was watching this very sophisticated art cinema. And he like really opened my eyes a lot to, um, especially like French new wave style filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And I was just some like dipshit in Chalmette. Uh, and he was like <laughs> bringing that into my house, you know, like I could rent his movies at Blockbuster and they like really opened my eyes to like a smarter version of cinema that I didn't even know about. And for him to have this like artsy, fartsy New Yorker style magazine that's produced in France, but published in middle America, it, it's like very obvious that he knows that he's bringing in like art house aesthetics to shopping mall multiplexes and Blockbuster video shelves. Like he realizes that, He's kind of a populist filmmaker. Like he's making smart art for a wide audience. Mm-hmm. And what I would say to that is that he is way funnier than I've ever understood him to be after watching this. I'm like, oh yeah, the thing I love about his movies is that I laugh through like 90% of them. And he has these like emotional gut punches in that like kind of twee melancholy kind of way. Mm-hmm. But really he makes high style 
visually exciting films packed with movie stars on these very intricate sets and they just tell jokes for like two hours and you laugh the entire time. Yeah. And the joke to laugh ratio in this film in particular is maybe higher than he's ever gone for before. It's just like constant punchlines and constant visual gags. And um, I just feel like I understand him better now as a filmmaker after watching it. Like I used to think of him as this like high art, sophisticated thing. And I'm like, oh yeah, it's junk food for like mass consumption. It's just like very visually meticulous in a way that a lot of modern mainstream comedies don't bother with. Um, so he gets kind of like, he's kind of stuck between two places. There are people who are like more serious about art films who think he's like kind of too lowbrow. And then there's like people like my parents who the first time I ever heard of Wes Anderson was my parents telling me they watched this movie World Tenenbaums at the theater and they fucking hated it. <laughs> and they thought I would like it. They like came <laughs> home from the theater like, we just watched the worst movie we've ever seen. You'll love it. Um, <laughs> So, I don't know. I'm, I'm right in his sweet spot. He basically taught me how to watch movies, um, along with a few other filmmakers. And uh, I thought this was one of his best in a long while. Oh, wow. And I don't know. I'd be, I'd be curious if y'all have a similar relationship with him. I, I don't know if I'm, like, higher on him than other people, but this really felt like a substantial 2021 release to me. I, I mean, I was a big Wes Anderson fan, like, late high school, you know, early in college. And then... I think there were a few films of his that didn't quite connect with me and I sort of have fallen off the bandwagon. Um, But this sounds really good. And I definitely, I wanted to check it out when it first came out and I just missed it, but I will definitely be watching this one soon. I I haven't seen a Wes Anderson movie in a very, 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 very long time. I like his movies. I appreciate like the look of them more than anything, I guess. Everything has that, like, you know, kind of weird mid-century modern color scheme and look mm-hmm. to it that I think is always fun to to have in a movie. Um, but I was never, like, a diehard or anything like that for Wes Anderson. I appreciate him. I just don't, like, go as far as some other big fans of his go, I guess. Yeah, I think I've always been like very drawn to but also very wary of his aesthetic just because it's like so strong and then I'm always surprised by how much I actually like the films apart from the style and that's kind of how I feel about Timothy Chalamet too like I expect myself to not like Timothy Chalamet every time I see him in a movie and I always think he does a great job and I know Mm -hmm. that he is also in the French Dispatch so this is kind of like, I don't know. The, the, I think that's why I haven't seen this movie yet, but I am very interested to watch it because I always end up liking um, Wes Anderson movies. I think Timothy Chalamet was the smartest casting choice in the entire film because obviously people who've been watching Wes Anderson movies since the 90s are starting to get a little eye-rolly about what he can accomplish. Mm-hmm. And... um I know for myself, the most I was ever excited about him was when I was a teenager. So, like, bringing in this, like, teenage, like, teen beat heartthrob (laughs) um, (laughs) and casting him, like, naked for um, a small portion of the film, uh, I think is, like, very smart. Because you're going to hook all these, like, teenage uh, kids into watching it to see their, like, twink hunk of the month uh, (laughs) in the bathtub. And they'll, like, be turned on to the, like, very teen-friendly Wes Anderson aesthetic. Yeah. The my number three of the year also has a twee touch to it as well, but it's a lot more acerbic. Uh, I watched 
uh, French Exit several times mm. this year. Still haven't seen it. This is the most Britney movie I've seen this year, I think. Because <laughs> there is a very um, important cat uh, in the film, and I don't want to spoil what the cat means to the plot for you, okay. but um, I, I do want your opinion on it whenever you watch it. Okay. You told me about it, too. You're like, this is your movie, and I'm like, cool, and I wrote it down, and I just never watched it. <laughs> I'm starting to realize this is like a reverse Deadpool s- syndrome where like I watch this movie and I scream laughing throughout. <laughs> it just delights me so much. And everyone else just completely shrugs it off. And it just doesn't mean anything to anyone else. Uh, so maybe you won't like it as much as I do, but I- I'd be surprised. Uh, basically, it's just a vehicle for Michelle Pfeiffer. Mm. If, you- if you really liked Michelle Pfeiffer's sort of like side-eye sarcasm in Mother. Love it. This is her doing that um, for the entire length of a film. She is like the center of the show. Uh, She plays this sort of like socialite drunk who is past her prime. Like the glamour is kind of fading. Um, And she's also running out of money. And she decides that she is going to spend the rest of her money that she has in her bank account. And once she's out, she will kill herself. And uh, it is a whimsical comedy about an impending suicide where, like, um, she has the way that a lot of rich eccentrics do. She just has this way of attracting weirdos into her orbit. And she just sort of collects them like Pokemon in this apartment in France. Uh, and has, like, this, like, makeshift family of total freaks um, who are just, so, like, sort of drawn into her, like, gravitational pull. Um, and every scene, she just does stunts. Like, she lights table settings at restaurants on fire. Mm. She, like, sharpen <laughs> knives in the dark. She talks to her cat um, in a very, like, serious way. She she muses about the sad nature of dildos. Um, <laughs> like, every scene is like a new Nick Cageian-style acting stunt, um, except it's a little more muted and, like, martinis uh, shared at, like, a drag club kind of energy. Uh, and I was just on the hook for everything she was doing in this film. It like really spoke to my soul. Um, and I, I every time I recommend it to people, um, it's for diminished returns. People <laughs> like, oh, I guess it was fine. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know what to say there. I will say, I think what I'm going to do sometime this year is maybe just have an episode where we can talk about Twee in general and like what that means mm-hmm. to us. <laughs> because uh, I think it's like a aesthetic that's not well liked or respected especially in retrospect like the further we get away from the 2000s mm-hmm. um and there are a lot of films that do it right uh for me and i think this one touches on kind of wes anderson visual aesthetics uh mm. but has more of a detached drunk fabulous character at the center of it that um kind of slows down the pace and makes you just sort of like drink her up it's it's kind of like a bright green tree from a wes anderson movie that like lost all its leaves and is slowly (laughs) turning brown and rotting yeah exactly (laughs) and then my number two film of the year we already talked about on a recent episode so i won't go very long on it um it's called i blame society oh oh yeah it's about a disgruntled filmmaker who um, in real life was complimented by her friends who told her that she would make a great serial killer, that like all her skills behind the camera would translate well to murdering people. And um, she takes this real life compliment in a short film about that compliment where she interviews friends and family about her serial killer potential. Uh, she takes that as a launching pad for this fictional film where she actually starts killing people on camera and sort of vents about 
how fucking difficult it is for a woman with no prior credits to get started in the film industry, particularly making movies about difficult women and women misbehaving. Um, and she turns her real life persona into this like difficult, unlikable quote unquote female character. Um, so it's, it's basically the strong female character that everyone says they want, but don't actually want. She like shoves that in your face and has like a very great satirical time um, pointing out a lot of fallacies in um, the like push for, women behind the camera where like people that don't actually want what women have to say. They want women's names on projects that men have already started. Mm -hmm. Like it's like a diversity quota thing and not actually something people mean when they talk about it. Uh, And I, I just think it's a wonderful sharply angry comedy about the state of modern filmmaking, especially DIY filmmaking. Uh, And I don't know, another one that like French exit, like really hits me right in the middle of my brain space, (laughs) (laughs) like really gets the way I think. Um, minus killing people, I don't do that. Uh, <laughs> everything else not. I identify with. Yeah, I um, I really liked that movie, and I especially loved the the bagel scene in the middle. Um, oh, I mean, maybe not yeah. especially. Like, I there were a lot of great scenes in this film, but I thought that was such a like darkly funny reaction for that character to have like a totally it it makes complete sense that she would be like basically asking him for affirmation as he is slowly being poisoned by a sesame seed bagel i loved her characterization i thought it was very funny yeah i um i was surprised at how funny this movie is (laughs) um at first i thought it was gonna be sort of this like very indie very kind of boring thing that i would be expected to understand that i really didn't understand um but it wasn't it ended up just being like a lot of fun and there's a lot of dark humor in it and i think that we all love dark humor as a podcast in general so yes (laughs) and also i i also want more movies about bad people i don't know i just like i like that that trend i don't know when i was like watching again watching red rocket she's pretty horrible i mean she's killing mm-hmm. innocent people in this mo- but like that that seems like a modern trend is like movies about horrible people and i dig it i like that as a counterpoint to people online especially younger people are very into like almost like a haze code type morality where like if a character is bad they want to see them punished or like they yeah. want the movie yeah. to comment on how bad they are um, and yeah, I like that there are filmmakers who are still being provocative in the opposite direction, where it's like, no, fuck that. Like, sometimes people are just awful. Well, what was that great <laughs> movie uh, with Melissa McCarthy from a year or two ago where she was um, forging? Can you ever forgive Can me? You ever for- mm-hmm. Yeah, that was another one. I-, I want more movies like that and like this, like where we can have people on screen that are bad people that don't get punished. Although she, well, gets she, gets she gets punished. She gets punished in that movie. She but. goes to jail. <laughs> anyway. Well, our very last film is another over-the-top uh, genre exercise, a very last outlier, and it's Britney's number two. Really? <laughs> 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 so my number two is Willie's Wonderland. Oh! oh okay. As we know, starring and produced by Nicolas Cage, Um, And in this movie, he plays a drifter who works at uh, Willie's Wonderland, which is like a Chuck E. Cheese type place. Um, Well, he works there as a janitor to pay off some of his debts for car repairs that he had done as he's strolling through this weird little town. 
and these animatronic characters at Willy's Wonderland, which is like this shut down family fun play place, uh, come to life and they're trying to kill him. There's like a, a weasel, an alligator, a chameleon, an ostrich, a knight, a turtle, and a, a girl. And he's just literally kicking ass. Um, <laughs> this whole movie, to me, felt like Nicolas Cage versus Chuck E. Cheese. And he just really does a good job of bringing out this like badass action chops that he has that we've seen him really show off in Mandy. It's almost like another version of mandy it's not as good as mandy obviously but i don't know it reminded me a lot of the way he was in that movie and i loved it so much and the animatronic characters were like deeply disturbing they weren't uh cheesy at all i was completely freaked out by them and i was completely freaked out by the plot too um because they're actually those animatronic characters hold the souls of a bunch of cannibalistic psychos that did this weird cult thing that um, transported their souls into those uh, machine bodies after they all killed themselves together. Hmm. So yeah, it was a a creepy action packed movie that um, was just super, um, super bloody and super fun. <laughs> and a surprise favorite of furries online. <laughs> yeah. totally. The violent furry film. Yeah, exactly. More kinks were born after Willy's Wonderland. For <laughs> I sure. think what I, I liked about this movie, because um, I was thinking about it in comparison to Pig, which I know we're going to talk about <laughs> later. But, you know, Pig, it's like if someone tells you, oh, hey, there's a movie where Nick Cage, uh, his truffle pig gets stolen and he has to rescue it or find it. You have a certain like expectation of what that movie is going to be. But obviously in Pig, it like subverts that and it's a totally different kind of movie this felt like the opposite where it's like if you tell me nick cage is going to battle animatronic Chuck E. cheese characters i have a certain expectation and this movie was a hundred percent what i would want and expected i agree to you to a point because like yes the action and like the tone is very much what you would expect but it does withhold in some ways like it's not constantly pointing out how goofy the scenario is. It plays it pretty straight. Yeah, and that's good. Like, I, I would probably be very annoyed if the movie was like, isn't this wacky every couple scenes? Which is kind of how I felt about Prisoners of the Ghostland, which was his other movie this year. Mm. Instead, uh, yeah, Nicolas Cage has no dialogue, so he doesn't have any of his, like, classic yelling freakouts. Um, and, yeah, it's just kind of played like a thriller that just happens to have a ridiculous premise. Um, so I agree with you that it like delivers the goods in what you would expect from a movie like this. But like I was most satisfied with it when it was being like restrained. There's a few scenes with like wisecracking teen victims that like didn't really hit for me. But um, when it's just him fighting the animatronics and he's like taking it dead seriously, uh, I, I think it does like really fun mm-hmm. like genre playoffs. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I love how he is still like committed to finishing the job he agreed oh, yeah. to. Like throughout all of this, like he'll he'll kill one one of the animatronic things that are trying to kill him, and then when he's done, he'll just go back to his like janitor duties that he signed up for. Yeah, <laughs> he's he's it's great. Not even really surprised when they start attacking him. He it's is just not like, phased. Oh, all right, well, this is another thing that's part of this job, and now I'm gonna wipe up all of this um, stuffed animal oil and keep cleaning. 
And he does a great job. He's very good at cleaning. Absolutely. But yeah, I just, I love this movie. Love Willy's Wonderland. I think it's a classic. Gentlemen, I'm Richard Cheese. What I really, really love when I look around this place is all the sets of boobies, and I want them in my face. Hello, boobies. I love boobies. I love gazongas. I love knockers and chimichangas. I love melons and bonbons and Winnebago's. I'll take a big chest of shirt potatoes because I love boobs. Thank you. So for our overlap slash consensus picks, we had some movies that were on a few of our lists, but were not anyone's number ones. There were two movies that were on two of our lists, and they are James and Hannah joints. Some ones y'all collaborated on. So uh, James is number seven and Hannah's number four. All right. So my number four was Licorice Pizza, which is the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie um, starring Alana Haim as Alana Kane and um, Cooper Hoffman, who is Philip Seymour Hoffman's um, son. Gary. Um, So Gary's a 15 year old shyster. Um, He meets Alana at his freshman year um, school photo shoot she is working for uh, i think it's called tiny toes yeah this this photography company tiny toes she's kind of in arrested development and he is like his goal in life is to like get the quickest scheme he possibly can so they kind of form a friendship and it the movie follows their friendship as it kind of changes throughout a summer in the 70s. Um, it was heavily inspired by Paul Thomas Anderson's um, experience growing up in the, I think it's the San Fernando mm-hmm. Valley in California during that time period. Um, I thought this movie was extremely funny. I thought Alana Haim was just so magnetic in this role she is so funny she is like very childish and brash and kind of like wheeling like just flying by the seat of her pants for the whole movie but there so there's a lot of controversy about their age difference because there is kind of like a romantic relationship between the two um and she's 25 he's 15 and some people thought it was a romantic ending. Like there was a, a, but I like totally saw the ending of this movie as a tragedy. Alana is trying to break out into adulthood. She gets a job um, canvassing for a, a political candidate. Um, she kind of gets a closer look into his personal life and how difficult it is to have and maintain adult relationships. And then she kind of like goes back to Gary, who she has been chastising for like being childish and selfish. Um, And I thought it was like, the movie kind of plays it as this triumphant moment for her. And I thought it was like very sad. And I I was just like, Alana, please 
like go beyond this 15 year old guy who is um, simulating a fellatio on a gas can. Um, anyway, I thought it was a very funny movie. I thought it was a very cool um, window into the 70s in California during that time. I love that time period. Um, yeah, so I really liked it. I know James saw it. I don't know if anyone else saw it, but those were my thoughts. Is this the first film that she... Act- I know she's part of the musical group, but yeah. has she acted before or is this like her first movie? I think this is her first movie. And actually her entire family is also in this movie as oh. her family. Yeah, it's like her sisters play a pretty big part and they're her actual sisters. Um, so it's also like a Kane or Haim family joint. And I think Paul Thomas Anderson mm. knew her mother when oh, wow. he was growing up in California. How cool. And he's collaborated with them on music videos before, so they have, like, a pretty close connection. I, yeah, I really want to see this movie. Um, I haven't watched it, but, yeah, all I've heard about it is just the controversy about this, like, age gap situation where I'm like, I, have, I don't even know, know the characters, the context, or whatever. Right. So it almost seems like everyone kind of just focused on that and maybe misunderstood it. I never understand how those things happen because, like, Red Rocket was in the theaters at the exact same time, and that movie is actually about a man, right. like, predating on a, like, teenager. Yeah. And then Francis McDormand fucks Timothy Chalamet in The French Dispatch, and that's, you know, a bigger age gap there as well. Right. So I, I don't know how those controversies get started, like, how people laser focus on, like, one villain. Yeah. Yeah, and in Red Rocket, like, like there was some discussion i can't remember if it was the actress who plays strawberry or sean baker but saying like oh you know she's uh really mature for her age and she's like always one step ahead of of rex and like she's actually the one in control and i totally did not get that sense watching red rocket i thought it was like a much more complicated relationship but i felt like the relationship in licorice pizza was complicated but like she was obviously not predatory but something else was mm-hmm. going on that also wasn't, it's not, it wasn't this like star-crossed lovers, this is an amazing like situation for both of them. It was like tragic in its own way. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I feel like that big of an age gap is important to the film. I mean, because if they were closer in age, if she was 20 and he was 17, there's not really, it's not like they're really in two different worlds, but like someone at 25 and someone at 15, that's two different worlds. And the whole point of the picture is that she's like an adult that can't handle being an adult because it sucks. And he's a 15 year old that acts and wants to be an adult. And they kind of like meet in the middle. And I thought that was sort of the whole point of the of the picture. And I think picking those ages was the right right move even if it kind of like makes some people uncomfortable but like like kind of like we were talking about with Wes Anderson like Paul Thomas Anderson for me is like he's a top three filmmaker like I have watched every single one of his movies I get excited for everyone and I followed his career you know from the first time I saw Magnolia and then I saw Boogie Nights and I was like oh shit like this guy's one of my favorite filmmakers and this felt like him at his most laid back it's definitely one of those like hangout movies you know it's just scenes of characters like getting into stuff hanging out talking 
And it's also probably his like sweetest movie. It's like a time capsule of the 70s, but it's not glamorizing it in the way that like Quentin Tarantino was doing it like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like I know there's people that are very nostalgic for like 70s Hollywood. And this film sort of plays with that. You think it's like cinnamon, making it all sentimental, but there's all this like kind of darkness on the edges. And it's sort of seems like a critique of that nostalgic mindset. Like, no, there was like racism and homophobia and all this political shit going on back then. It was like a very dark time that we kind of gloss over. And I thought that tied in beautifully with her character who is sort of nostalgic for being a kid again. And she wants to go back to that time. And like Hannah said, the ending while played as this like kind of romantic triumphant moment is really like a sad moment because she just can't handle being an adult and she wants to go back to a simpler time. So I don't know. I thought for like that kind of genre of like hangout time capsule movies, it was really great. I, I really enjoyed it. And it, also has a few cameos from Bradley Cooper and um, Sean Penn has a scene that are just so wild and so funny. The Bradley Cooper stuff in this movie is some of my favorite stuff of any movie I've seen this year. He is totally unhinged and it is <laughs> so much fun to watch. Um, and same thing with Sean Penn playing a version of himself uh, that I thought was really funny. So there's a lot of sweet stuff, a lot of really laugh out loud stuff. And I think it does have a cool message about nostalgia. And the guy can make a movie. Like the whole time I'm just watching, I was like, damn, this guy has pretty much mastered how to make film. And that that's inspiring. Well, also another overlap film between the two of y'all, Hanna's number eight and James's number three. Oh, wait, I have, to, I have to check my list. It's Writers of Justice. <laughs> oh, writer! Oh. oh, my God. Um, I think this is probably the strangest movie I've seen all year. And it is going to be so difficult to describe the tone <laughs> of this film. Um, a, a basic plot, um, Mods Mikkelsen's character, he loses his wife in a train accident. And he's an ex-military you know, guy and... These group of mathematicians are convinced that this gang was responsible, that it wasn't just chance. And they calculate it like, you know, it's there's a one in three billion chance that this was just an accident. And this leads Mod, Mods Mikkelsen to go on a killing spree, essentially, you know, trying to track down this gang that he thinks was responsible for his wife's death. But at the core of it, it's really about grief and how this man just cannot deal with loss. And he really just needs therapy. And I think Brandon, in the initial time we talked about this, brought this up, how really like people are just pleading with him, like, please, can we go to therapy and talk about this? And he refuses. They make it so easy yeah. for him to go to therapy. But he can't do it. He just won't do and it. And he commits heinous acts of <laughs> violence. And so that sounds like a certain kind of mood, like a revenge thriller, like a taken. Take but I think it really comes down to it's a Danish film. And I've watched enough Danish films to understand their sense of humor. And they have a very 
dark sense of humor that I really, really like. And this film captures it perfectly. Like what should be this very kind of generic revenge tale ends up being a really heartfelt, sweet, extremely funny movie about revenge. And it also gets into kind of this philosophical stuff about about chance and fate. But the movie itself is like, it throw you get like whiplash when you're watching it because when I started watching it, I thought it was one thing, and then it quickly I I'm like what is this? I can't even wrap my brain around what kind of movie we're watching, but I think it nails it. Like there's something so charming and sweet, and it was like one of the funniest movies I've seen all year, and it was really like about something, and it ends on kind of this like holiday sort of Christmas, this sort of like found family message that I thought was like really, really touching. And yeah, I don't know, just like such a strange movie and just so like deeply human and bizarre at the same time. I loved it. I don't know if there's any implication for the first like 40 minutes that you're watching a comedy. Yeah. It's like a very straightforward drama about this like, matriarch dying and her like you know husband and daughter having to deal with that loss uh it's like very sad and then towards the end it feels like a full-on taken spoof especially like by the time he has a warehouse uh like headquarters with like a crack team of like hackers and elite specialists helping him and they're all terrible at their jobs (laughs) and all have their own mental issues that are like getting in the way of you know collective success uh, it's like, oh yeah, this is like a full-on spoof. It's like almost Zaz, like how funny this is. Like the shootouts and stuff are like brutal, but they're also like a very exaggerated, cartoonish version of those Liam Neeson movies. Kind of like Nobody from this year is another but, one that kind of played then, straight for a minute. Then it does this crazy thing like by the end where you actually understand these characters and that they all have like grief they're trying to get through in their life. And at the end, when they come together as like a family unit, I I got like teary eyed. I was like, how am I so wrapped up like emotionally in this movie that's been so tonally jarring? And I thought that that was like a magnificent, like, I don't know how they pulled it off. And I think a lot of it is Mods Mikkelsen and the supporting cast. But like this movie was like magic where I just like was thrown in so many different genres. And still by the end, like I felt it. You know, I thought that was just such a special movie. It's also a philosophy movie, right? Because there's a lot of like open discussion about chance Mm -hmm. versus like God's intervention versus like just the statistics of like the likelihood of something happening. Yeah, and about how like when something, you know, is an accident or when something terrible happens, we want to say, you know, it was an accident or in other situations, you want to try to put blame on someone but the fact is it's like all random and we're like trying to project meaning onto these horrible events in our life. Yeah, I, there is a lot intellectually to chew on there too, but it still had tremendous heart. So I, I really, I don't know. This movie I think about a lot and that's why it's my number three. And I I like, uh, you know, in most of these Taken movies, the protagonist is impenetrable he's like very physically and emotionally resilient 
And, you know, everybody in Riders of Justice is extremely vulnerable in some way. Like, everybody has these uh, very obvious emotional flaws and problems. And even Mods Mikkelsen does. Like, he is totally emotionally stunted and cannot process anything except through violence. And it's emphasized that that is not like a healthy way of dealing with things. And he works through that throughout the entire movie. And I liked that, you know, he's obviously strong, but they show how crucial emotional strength is and how his found family kind of like supplements him and and helps him heal. Yeah, it's definitely like James mentioned earlier, like movies about toxic masculinity. Yeah. This one's like very openly about it. Right. Uh, especially like, the way that like violence is the only acceptable emotional response to anything. Well, and, and like you brought up nobody and this is a good counterpoint to nobody because I, I do feel like nobody sort of celebrated the violence a little bit, sort of like winking at you like, isn't this cool? Like this is pretty badass. And this movie doesn't do that. It's the opposite where it's like, isn't this fucked up and horrible? And yeah. <laughs> I dug that message a lot more, but it is a strange movie, though. It's definitely not for everybody, but um, if you can get on its wavelength and, you know, get on for the ride, it, it's worth it. Well, there was one movie that was on three of our lists, but wasn't anyone's number one. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. It was Britney's number nine, Hannah's number seven, and James's number six. Ooh. St. Maud. So this movie is a downer. <laughs> To say the least. I mean, and it's really just like this fascinating character study of this really lonely woman who, you know, she's hired to take care of this aging dancer. And it's so like, it's a movie that like gets under your skin. Like when I was watching it, I just felt like kind of gross. Even the look of the film is sort of musty and, but it, what I thought initially was going to be more about this relationship between the actress and the woman that's charged with taking care of her. It's really more just about her and how isolated she is and how, you know, she starts to have these visions from God and she's convinced God is talking to her and she kind of falls into religious zealotry. And then I can't talk about this movie without talking about the ending, I mean, I won't spoil it, but it's kind of like with Malignant. Um, I was totally like on board with this movie. I got where it was going. I thought it was a really good character study. And then the last 20 minutes blew my socks off. And I still think about the end of this movie on a very regular basis. And it is one of the most shocking, effective, powerful, like final images from a movie I've seen in quite some time. That's really why it ranks so highly for me is like that ending is like the perfect encapsulation of the entire film. And it just sears its way into your brain. And like those images have not left me. Since. It feels like two seconds at best that reveal. Like it's like a half breath, <laughs> the like final image yeah. Yeah. Uh, in that ending. Which is pretty incredible. Like it kind of leaves you like leaning in for more, um, and you, you don't get it. You kind of like hang with a half a breath. It's a very shocking finale. Mm -hmm. Well, and even there's a scene before that, a uh, kind of a jump scare. That maybe besides that jump scare, I was talking about in Nighthouse, 
the only other jump scare this year where I literally leaped out of my seat. I like was screaming at the TV, like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, um, so that one, two punch of that jump scare. And then the, those final seconds really left an impression on me and really kind of tie the movie up in a perfect bow, mm-hmm. um, which at the end is just like a really intense character study of a very sad, depressed person. Um, but I feel like kind of like there's a movie, a dark song from a few mm-hmm. years ago. Like the final image elevates the whole thing into a whole nother stratosphere. I loved the relationship between uh, Maud and um, Amanda. Just looking at through, if we're looking at like movies that explored like relationships and friendships and things like that in 2021, I think this was the most interesting because there's like this really uncomfortable like sexual energy between the both of them but then also this like nurturing kind of caring friendship as well and i just loved amanda's character just this badass like dying miserable (laughs) human being (laughs) who's like loves poking fun at like how, you know, Maud is acting like she's a, you know, Saint Maud. I think that was my favorite part of this movie, was just the the two of them. I think that's what kept it out of my top 10. I, I had to lower my top 20, was because I really want the movie to be the two of them, like, erotically sparring mm-hmm. back and forth, because that energy is so strong. But like James was saying, that's just not what it is. Like, it is a character study about Maud's particular worldview. Um, and I've seen it three times now, and... The rewatches, I appreciate it more for what it is and not what I want it to be. Mm-hmm. Even just getting in the fact that at first glance, you're like, oh, she's like a you know Catholic extremist. And then the more you like pay attention, you're like, actually, she's just completely making up whatever religion she's, mm-hmm. whatever denomination she's oh, committing sure. herself to. Like, yeah. She's the only disciple in that particular denomination. Right. There's no one else. Her church of like pain and isolation. And ecstatic orgasms. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's a there's a guilt, horniness, guilt cycle she goes through that like felt very Catholic to me on first glance. And then um, realizing that like, no, she's just kind of winging well, it. Yeah. It was funny <laughs> really to think about this me. movie in comparison to uh, Benedetta. It's like if she could have just had Benedetta, <laughs> yeah. as a, you know, then she would have been much better off. Yeah. Um, but she definitely took the Catholic guilt to, to heart. If you want to get into writing fan fiction, I think that's a good crossover. Oh my god, <laughs> Saint Maud and Saint Benedetta. Yeah, I I think I really appreciated that Saint Maud goes into like it dips into the supernatural a little bit, just like dip because that's I don't know. This was another A twenty four like horror psychological drama, and I didn't know which side it would lead into, and it was definitely you know ninety percent of the film was just like a very strange character study, but just that there's a little bit of the taste of the fantastical, even if a lot of it is in her head. I like that always kind of brings a movie up one or two spots for me. And yeah, the reveal Mm -hmm. at like the like sub 15 minute mark was so shocking and, and thrilling and very exciting. Believe it or not, there was one movie that was on all four of our lists, Ooh. but was nobody's number one. Oh, Whoa, oh boy. What's that? James's number 10, my number 10, Hannah's number six, and Brittany's number three. 
Oh. oh. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So that would be Barb and Star go to Vista mm. Del Mar. Amazing. I, yeah. I We talked about this, too, because we had, I can't, what was the theme of that episode we had earlier on this year where... It was just like best of the year so far because I was under the impression that nobody was watching new releases. Yeah, I, I <laughs> so we I like mean, kind of caught up. Yeah. And I yes, because I remember all of y'all were like, "You're gonna like this movie. You should look at this movie. You should choose this movie." And I did it. And we bullied you. Yeah, bullied yeah. me into this, but it. I loved it. It was such like a, a comedy classic that really like pushed boundaries at the same time with like. It's comedy. Like, I mean, there's this whole, like, threesome scene within this movie, which I, yeah, I, just the fact that, like, everyone was talking about it, like, mothers and grandmothers going to see it. I just found that to be very funny. Um, And I love the vibrancy of it, how it's very 80s, very kitschy, but it feels like you're in this, I don't know, like, it's not by McGee, but it feels like McGee almost. It feels like a Florida um, gift shop directed the movie. Yeah. You know what? That makes a lot of sense because guess who loves Florida gift shops? Me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I have so many of those like glitter seashell treasure chests and like dolphins made of glitter sand. But yeah, the movie feels like that. And it's just, it's, it's funny. And it's, well, kind of, I'll go over the plot a little bit, but Barb and Star, AKA Starborough, are these two like really pure, really innocent, like middle-aged women who are best friends living in this boring town. I think, what is it? Soft Rock, Nebraska. (laughs) And they lose their job at a furniture store. And then they go to Vista Del Mar, Florida on a vacation. And at the same time they're there, there's an evil villain who is seeking revenge on Vista Del Mar because she was bullied by a lot of the mean girls there when she was younger due to her allergy to the sun. And then she also got sh- uh, shot out of a cannon at a shrimp queen <laughs> ceremony um, at their annual seafood jam. And this takes place around the time that seafood jams coming back up. So Barb and Sora kind of get mixed up within this like villains plan to unleash uh, deadly mosquitoes and kill everybody in Vista Del Mar. It's, it's so stupid. Like everything in it's so stupid and so funny. Like it's stupid funny. And I love it. It was nice to have like a really good movie come out that like has no seriousness to it whatsoever. Like there's no underlying meaning, nothing. It just totally uh, freed me from the pandemic world (laughs) and let me enjoy life again. (laughs) This one and Mandibles. uh, Oh, Mandibles. Yes. They both reminded me a lot of like a 90s buddy comedy style that don't get made anymore. Yes. So like Romy and Michelle and Zoolander. Oh, and totally. Dude, where's my car? And Night at the Roxbury. Mm-hmm. Just like two dumb buddies going on a road trip together and like baffling everyone else who's not in their like two person orbit. Mm-hmm. Like they speak a language that no one else speaks and everyone else who encounters them is like, what is going on <laughs> with you two? Uh, and I, I think that you know, comedy style, that dumb and dumber, Mm. like dynamic is always funny. And in this case in particular, it's just very wholesome and bright and colorful. And honestly, like surprisingly, one of the best musicals releases. (laughs) (laughs) All the songs are very fun. They are. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I didn't realize that I missed those nineties comedies until I watched this, but I was like, damn, like they really don't make movies Mm -hmm. like this anymore. And that's a shame because, you know, especially 
with all the shit going on, like sometimes you just want pure escapism. You gotta laugh. Yeah, yeah, it exactly. Was, yeah, it's <laughs> you gotta laugh, and it's nice to have a comedy that's not like Seth Rogen and James Franco. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you know something different. This felt so fresh. Yeah, and it's got it's raunchy, but it also has this like particular brand of like midwestern women in their 50s like you can make a chico's joke there is like a talking (laughs) club and they have hot dog soup i was so (laughs) immersed in that growing up in like a smallish city in minnesota so this was it was just like tickling every every comedy bone in my body that talking club (laughs) <laughs> is i i wish they would make a movie about the talking club they were so right. funny oh my god yeah i like that because of that accent too you don't Im- immediately catch how raunchy the movie is like annie mamulo can be talking about how she got her labia pierced for like 30 seconds right before you catch on to what you're listening to yeah like, oh god that's actually like very filthy <laughs> <laughs> like it, there's like a delay yeah i don't know i just hope that we see an uptick of these kind of movies. I mean, you had like what the Dewey Cox, the Walk Hard. I felt like was yeah. kind of like that, and then Pop Star that Hannah showed me recently felt kind of like the like mm-hmm. just like be silly and ridiculous, and as long as it's funny, that's all that yeah. really matters. And this movie obviously is very funny because we all connected with it. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. To that end, I would definitely recommend Mandibles, uh, who, you know, Quentin Depew directed uh, Deerskin, which is yeah. our favorite film last year. Mandibles is not quite as great as Deerskin, but it's on the same, like, 90s Farley Brothers yeah. throwback style. We're interested in taking local ingredients uh, native to this region and and just deconstructing them, you know, making the the familiar feel foreign, thereby giving us uh, an even greater appreciation of food as a whole. This is the kind of cooking you like? It's cutting edge. It's very exciting. Exciting. I mean, everybody loves it. And now our very favorite movies of 2021. These are our number one films. Uh, nobody had an outlier pick for their number one, so you know, everyone likes these movies. Let's start with James's number four and Hannah's number one. Okay, so my number one movie of the year um, was Power of the Dog, which is directed by um, Jane Campion, um, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, um, Jesse Plemons, uh, and Cody Smith-McPhee. So it is a story about a uh, wealthy ranching family, Um, two brothers. So Benedict Cumberbatch is this like rough and tumble cowboy and his brother is played by Jesse Plemons, who is kind of like a more well-to-do, the more well-to-do brother, but also like doesn't have as much charisma, although Benedict Cumberbatch is pretty detestable in this movie. Um, Anyway, he's... Uh, Jesse Plemons is not as charismatic. He's pretty lonely. His brother kind of taunts him and is also like a little obsessed with him. Um, He meets this woman in, she's kind of a bed and breakfast owner in this little town that they're passing through. She has 
a young, sensitive son who is studying to be a doctor. And um, Jesse Plemons proposes to her. She comes and joins their house. And Benedict Cumberbatch is very angry. Um, he feels that she is there basically for his money. He torments her um, throughout her stay. She kind of um, devolves into alcoholism. And then a very interesting relationship forms between her son, who is played by Cody Smith-McPhee and Benedict Cumberbatch. The score for this movie is done by Johnny Greenwood, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, The setting is absolutely gorgeous. I think it's ostensibly set in Oklahoma, but it was shot in New Zealand. And it is just like filled with these wide expanses um, of like rambling outback. Um, It's beautiful. The score is so tense. Like every single moment in this movie, I was just like dripping with anxiety. And I think the character of the son is so interesting. And his personality develops in a very unexpected way. The power dynamics between Benedict Cumberbatch and the son are um, like, you can just, they're so plumbable. It's, it's like so tense and so delicious. And the ending like totally throws the entire movie into a different light. I feel like that's kind of, there've been a couple movies throughout 2021 that have done that, but like this movie is a different movie watching it the second time. Um, which I have not done yet, but I um, absolutely will. Um, yeah, I just thought, that, like, I think this movie's about, it's about two hours long, and I just was enraptured the entire time. It's masterful. I mean, I think the score is really what, thinking about it, it's like, you're basically watching, there's a section of the film where it's, kind of feel like it's turning into like a broke back mountain. It's like these two cowboys who are flirting and there's obvious like phallic symbols, but the score score is like extremely tense and eerie. You're like, Whoa, why am I feeling like a certain way about this? Like, why is there all this like dread? And I don't know. It's just like so masterful in that it, it gives you, all the information it's right there in front of your face the whole time and yet at the end you're completely floored and you're like what did i really just that's what was going oh my god like and then you're just like i gotta rewatch it i want to know what y'all mean by that like because the dynamic between benedict Cumberbatch and the kid did not surprise me like i kind of knew what Benedict Cumberbatch was up to the entire time. Yeah. Do you just mean the kid's response to that? Yeah, I think the kid, like, the amount of power he had and the degree to which he knew what was going on and using the situation. He was the one with the power. Like, the whole time you think, oh, Benedict Cumberbatch, oh, he's the macho cowboy. He's showing him the ropes. He has the power. And upon, you know, further inspection, it's, he had... None of the power. He was getting worked from the get-go. And the as a film, too, like, she gives you, the director gives you just enough information. You don't feel like you were being lied to. It's all there. And yet, I was still floored by where it ended up. I watched this last night after doing some letterboxed snooping. I had uh, some time to watch <laughs> one more film. Ew. So I, I looked at all three of your profiles and tried to 
game out what movie I hadn't seen yet that was like readily available. And I watched this because of that. And I, I kind of was just avoiding it because Westerns are, and even just the Western setting, yeah. immediately like that's a hurdle for me to get over. A very superficial one that I need to work on. Well, I agree with you. I typically hate Westerns, but this sort of was yeah. like subverting, you know, because Benedict Cumberbatch is like the macho Western John Wayne guy. Right. But that gets used against him in a very clever way. Yeah, because the movie's very much critiquing that macho posturing. Yeah. Right? Like he is like putting on a performance the entire yeah. time. Like he has to be the loudest, most gregarious, most dominant person in any room he walks into. And if anyone's not fawning over how loud and obnoxious and powerful he mm-hmm. is at all times, he throws a fucking hissy fit. And he bullies anyone who doesn't perform that same masculinity, which is like the dynamic immediately when he meets this kid as a waiter before he's yeah. his nephew. He's his waiter. And immediately he like basically homophobically bullies this kid mm-hmm. as a stranger. And that was like something that really I hooked onto immediately. Like as soon as that first scene and then when they actually become family members very early in the film, I wrote this like kind of pithy one sentence review where I was like, this is a great movie about that one person in your family who is a fucking miserable bully and you obsess about the idea that if they died, then everyone around them, their lives would be instantly improved. Yeah. And speaking personally, I have two family members in mind, like one on either side of my family and they're both uncles. Uh, so like, <laughs> Wait, did they uh, die? No, I would love if they died. Oh, but they it, like, might. It, would, it would improve my life if they died suddenly. Always the uncles, uh, man. Yes. Fucking uncles. Uh, so yeah, I, I did not expect to connect with this film just based on like a very superficial genre reading of it from a mm. distance. So latching onto what it was about very early on and then seeing that theme satisfied by the yeah. end, uh, I was like, oh, okay. I'm like on this movie's wavelength. I'm not you know, engaging with it from a distance. Yeah. So I would love to watch more Jane Campion stuff just to like, like I want to see her movie in the cut, which is like an erotic thriller, which mm-hmm. like is in my sweet spot. Oh, isn't yeah. that with um, Meg Ryan? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a good movie. I want to see that really badly now yeah. that like, I want to see movies <laughs> where she's like playing with genre tropes that I do immediately understand. Yeah. Cause this really did sneak past my like genre biases. Yeah. I liked it a lot. Uh, I was so afraid that this was going to be a movie about, homophobia and like violence enacted upon gay men young gay men because of homophobia like i thought that benedict cumberbatch was going to like destroy this young boy because of his own you know his own unresolved feelings and there were so many moments that like show you who this boy is that shocked me like that when he 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 is seems to be this like very sensitive young sweet young boy when he like catches the rabbit and he's showing his mother his rabbit and then later on the maid goes in to feed the rabbit a carrot and he has this (laughs) rabbit dissected on his desk like very matter-of-factly it was like a shock and he has those he shows who he is to benedict cumberbatch in these very small ways and that also shock this like very rough cowboy for a second and then he he like retreats back into um undervaluing the power of a mm-hmm. sensitive person and it like 
completely leads to his downfall. I just thought it was so, so interesting. Yeah, like, there's that great scene where there's, like, a bird up in a nest, and he walks by all the cowboys, and they're, like, you know, mocking him, making comments, and he is so stoic in that moment, and just, like, so focused, and obviously Benedict Cumberbatch, like, sees that and respects that, and... From the very get go, you're like, "Damn, this this kid is like, as much as Benedict Cumberbatch wants to posture and be this strong person, like the kid's actually the strong one here. Like he is a hundred percent himself in a way that you know Benedict Cumberbatch can't be in this movie. And like, I don't know, I thought that dynamic was really powerful, and I thought like this movie has a style of acting. I really like where it's like not super dialogue heavy, but there's a lot of like glances and little looks and you're like, Ooh, what did that look mean? And like the actors are so good in here that they just kind of tell a story through their body language. The uh, speaking of like the body language, like not everything is explained to the point where like when the mother is worried about the two of them spending time together, I could not tell if she was worried that, her son would be killed or if she was worried that he would become the uncle. Right. Like he was like being trained in that style of masculinity. And I don't think the movie answers that question. Like she's just doesn't find the two of them spending alone time together. Good. Yeah. And that's all that we get. Mm -hmm. I thought that's what she meant by it. Like, I'm like, Oh God, just like Bronco Henry trained you up. Right. Like you're going to train this boy up. I do find myself like more into westerns as of late. Thanks, Johnny Guitar, you know? <laughs> Great film. Yeah. But there's something that I love about a gay cowboy, period. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like the hottest thing. And he was so good with it. Like, I've only seen Benedict Cumberbatch as Sherlock. And watching him as this, like, you know, fake, rough and tough, like, mean old gay cowboy. What? Like, he was so right. good. <laughs> God, when he's massaging that saddle, I was like, Ugh. oh, Benedict. Yeah, but I loved this movie so much. And, like, one other part I want to talk about before we move on is... Uh, it was I had to, like, literally, like, close my ears and eyes. I was so full of secondhand embarrassment when he's like, hey, play your, your piano tune. Oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> brutal. In front of everyone. I'm like, stop it. <laughs> no. And he keeps whistling that tune yeah. to, like, yeah. torture and her. And he's taunting oh, her, like, because he can play the banjo very well. And he's just like, ugh. And then, yeah, he goes shredding it on the banjo. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Fucking miserable bully. I experienced that recently in Guitar Center when I was, like, I was, like, oh, messing no. around on a synthesizer. And this little girl came over with her dad and she was, like, play Happy Birthday. And I was, like, okay, that's fine. And I could not play Happy Birthday. <laughs> Every note was wrong. And I was, like, I just stopped and I said, I am so sorry. And then I left. Wow. <laughs> it, was, it was bad so yeah and then was... all of a sudden a cowboy swarms to <laughs> the corner and starts right. shredding happy birthday on a guitar <laughs> he takes a banjo off the guitar center wall <laughs> right oh god <laughs> horrible well our next movie was britney's number six my number five hannah's number three and james's number one whoa um so we're talking about pig um so man where do i begin with this movie so 
I guess like we talked about with expectations, uh, like I brought up when we were talking about Willy's Wonderland, going into this movie, just kind of hearing the plot synopsis and seeing the poster for it, you know, Nicolas Cage is going to like find his pig. And I, like so many people, assume this is going to be John Wick with a pig. That's how it... Mm-hmm. It seemed apparent like that's the kind of movie this was going to be. And instead, what I got was something so much more profound and like slower. It's meditative. It is violent in parts, but it's like something really like interesting about grief and and pain. And again, like the way that men deal with pain and this movie to me is like more I want more movies like this. I want strange little indie films that like, you know, this movie is about like the culinary scene in Portland, but also, you know, about pain and loss and about our connection to animals too. Like it's about a lot of stuff, but not in a not in like a cookie cutter sort of way. It feels like organic and strange. This movie, this movie has just like stuck with me this entire year, and I think I think it's profound, and I think it's like one of Nick Cage's best performances of all time, and it's the most unique special movie that I saw this year. It's the most I cried during a film all year. Yes. Yeah. And it was the first movie I watched back in the movie theaters. Mm. It was like mm. around July. Uh, I just took off a day from work. I was like, I'm going to go see a couple movies. And I was going to go see this fun John Wick knockoff <laughs> with Nicolas Cage in it. And I could not see the screen because I was like fogging up my mask, uh, my, my glasses by crying with my mask on. Uh, and it was at a time where I was going to go to a restaurant with uh, some family members for the first time since the pandemic started. And just that idea of like sharing a well-cooked meal mm. with other people yeah, and like all the sensory memory triggers of that, like the smell and taste of good food and like the tactile, really authentic living that you don't get when you spend all of your time at home on the internet and not like actually out and about with other people and like doing things you actually care about instead of like just getting by doing your day job and paying your bills um, all these like authentic tactile things that have been like lost in my life in the past year. Mm-hmm. Um, all that stuff just really flooded my heart <laughs> watching this. Uh, and I was just sort of emotionally overwhelmed by it, which it is a very over the top film in some ways. Like it has like a fight club gag and mm-hmm. there's that scene where he like really dresses down that chef, uh, which is very like overwritten in a fun way, but like in a way that's kind of ridiculous in a genre film linking sense. But it does, like, really hit me, like, authentically in the emotions in a way that I can't deny. Like, it, it gets past those, like, kind of thriller, high concept well, touchdowns. Similar to Writers of Justice for me, like, this is a tonally strange film. I mean, it starts with just him and his pig, and uh, it's very sweet and slow and meditative. And then the pig gets stolen by these tweakers and then you're like okay here we go here's the john wick part and he ends up in this like fight club but he said like it's very surreal and almost like a fairy tale but the tone of it's like really off in a cool way but it's hard to describe 
the feel of of the movie but just like in Riders of Justice by the end I'm so emotionally invested in this story that it sort of takes you aback because you're like I should be feeling one way but I don't know like for me the food stuff definitely connected like you're saying like being in a pandemic and not being able to eat out with friends and family and just how food can trigger memories like that definitely connected with me but on a personal level, like our cat Dixie passed away a couple years ago and she was very special. I loved her. And just like when his pig gets stolen in the beginning and the cries of the pig are so heartbreaking. heartbreaking. Oh my God. And when he finally learns that like the pig is gone and he just breaks down, like I'm getting emotional just thinking about that. Like, because an animal is so perfect and when you lose an animal like that that's like a kind of gr- a grief that that this film really i think captures um and it's it's painful and the fact that he by the end of the film has like accepted it on some level and there's a great final shot where he's finally able to listen to the tape recording of his wife and he looks over and the pig's bed is empty and he kind of looks up and there's light and there's like redemption. He is accepted. That just like was the most beautiful thing I've felt in a movie this year. So for me personally, that's it kind of had a personal thing, but like I had to put it as my number one because it really does capture the grief in a really like real way so i i just obviously love this movie (laughs) yeah i really felt forward the whole like pig situation i like i my crying moment was like when he starts talking about like how he loves the pig at the end and Mm -hmm. it's not so much that he lost this tool that made him make money which i think everybody was assuming yeah he was just like i want to find her because i love her yeah, like that moment, I was like, oh, God. And then I looked at, you know, my fucking pig of a dog. <laughs> <laughs> right. And she's just staring at me. And I'm like, one of my biggest fears is that, like, somebody breaks into my apartment and I don't have anything valuable. <laughs> but I'm like, oh, my God, what if they steal my dog? <laughs> so it's just something that always, you know, is in the back of my head. So that kind of whew, yeah. threw me over. And I think it's so interesting how... I don't know anything about the restaurant industry. I haven't worked in it. I don't know what it really is like, but this makes like this whole like it's fucking brutal. Yeah, it is. Is it is it like the mafia like for truffle like and truffles and like high end ingredients? Like, well, it's yeah, crazy. with the truffle thing, it is sort of a a trend now. But as far as like that Fight Club scene, that actually yes. really resonated with me. I mean, I, I spent some time working in restaurants and like. I felt like the themes in the movie actually tied in in an interesting way with the restaurant scene stuff as well on like a few different levels. But mm-hmm. on a basic level, it's like when you go to work at a restaurant, usually you have male chefs who it's their like job to treat you like shit. And it's like a rite of passage that you can take it, you know. Oh, yeah. The, the chef, he God. like berates you and throws <clears throat> stuff at you. But like. Yeah, it's like a drill sergeant. Mm-hmm. Right, and that's how you know you've made it in the industry if you can stand it. And in this film, you have all these men who can't deal with their grief 
and they're like dealing with it in self-destructive sort mm-hmm. of ways. Mm-hmm. And that was like an interesting metaphor tied in with like the chef restaurateur culture that was really like kind of a head scratcher. Like, I don't know. It was an interesting kind of analogy, but then it also works on the level of like Brandon was saying with food being the sensory thing and memory and how that gets tied with loss. And there's like a lot of levels. Yeah. To and that. just the way that it doesn't have to be complicated. Like a really well cooked meal doesn't have to be super fussy. Like, you just have to care about what you're doing and put care into your ingredients mm-hmm. and the preparation. And like that could be a very powerful delivery. I think it works if you apply it to any kind of artistry. Mm-hmm. Like it reminds me a lot of the movie The Dressmaker. Yeah. There's a revenge tale where she like burns down an entire town by making pretty dresses. Another good Western. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also a uh, swan song. Like mm-hmm. he yeah. gets his revenge on the modern world by like, Dressing hair very well mm-hmm, by the mm-hmm. end. Uh, and that's like how he, you know, kind of has his barn burner finale with this existence. That's like that scene with where he dresses down the chef. It is a little overacted, but it's so good. Especially that line where the guy, he knows he's always wanted to open a pub, but he doesn't because he mm-hmm. cares about money. So he's doing this like gastronomical experimental thing. See, and I'm of two minds about that. Because like... I think there are people who are genuinely interested in the science of food. Oh, yeah. And like picking apart how food but is made. But he knew this chef from when he was right. working for him. Mm-hmm. He's like, you always wanted to open a pub. Why are you? And the line he has about, I think another theme in the film is about passion and love. Like, And he tells him, you know, if you do this thing for money and you don't do the thing you love, a little bit of you will die every single day. And... That to me seemed like at the heart of the film too. Like you have to open yourself up to love and to passion and devote yourself to that. And it will be scary because you could lose it. I mean, if you love something, ultimately you will lose it one day, but it's worth it to like keep your yourself. And like, and if you don't, if you sell yourself out for money, or convenience, whatever, you will lose a little bit of your soul every single day. And like that to me is like really at the core of what the movie's about. Yeah, and all of the men besides Nicolas Cage are so like alienated from their own hearts and their own loves, either through like, you know, choosing a path that will make you financially successful but but doesn't give you anything, or through like the inability to process grief, like the, you know, the son's dad, like not being able to let his wife go. And that world also like highly values the ability to shut yourself off from emotion and just plow through in a very aggressive way. Um, But that is like so damaging to your heart every single Mm day. So I, (laughs) I had a very like, strong reaction to this movie I, I started watching it on an airplane which is probably not a great idea um the pig kidnapping scene was horrific and then i think i the movie stopped like my plane ride ended right when the son has that monologue about his mother and his father about how his mother was like really mopey and his dad is really with it and like in the business and that just made me it made me so angry 
Um, it was just such a callous way to view the, those two like emotional experiences in the world. But I know that like the son was having trouble sorting through his own feelings. So the movie stopped and I was like, James, fuck this movie. I'm not watching this movie again. I know the pig dies. Fuck this movie. I don't want to see it. And then I finally watched the rest of it like four or maybe it was like a week ago. And it it is like extremely critical of, I think it is another movie about toxic masculinity, like shielding yourself from vulnerability and how damaging that is to you and everybody around you. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I turned around. I think it's a great movie. I'm still sad that the pig is dead. Yeah, that um, speaks to me just as someone who put themselves through college by working in kitchens. Like, Mm -hmm. it's a very macho atmosphere. Yeah. In a way I never connected with. Like, I just didn't get the, like, like, do we have to work like this? Right. Do we, like, have, like, a, you know, like, regular shift, like a fucking nine to five office job here and not try to bully each other all shift? So, yeah, it, it definitely, like, cues into, like, back of house kitchen culture in totally. a way I don't know if I've ever seen that in a movie before yeah well we do have one more and it is our consensus pick for the very best movie of 2021 <laughs> it was Hannah's number two James's number two Brittany's number one and my number Whoa. one <laughs> and it's Julia Ducarno's Titan ah, yeah. which I just went full spoilers discussing this movie start to end on the last episode of the show so I kind of want to open this up to Brittany like what Ooh. is this movie to you and why do you love it so I love body horror, but at the same time, I love new ideas in movies and exploration of shit that like when you say it out loud, it sounds horrible. Like, I just feel like this movie does such a good job of taking something that if you're saying it out loud, it sounds ridiculous, but it makes it into something like beautiful. And just bold. Like, the boldness of this movie just, like, blew me away. I mean, beyond the fact that someone's having a baby for a car, which is so up my alley. But, like, watching her body kind of, like, fall apart as she goes through this process of having this, like, car baby. The pain she, like, puts herself through. Like, there's this moment where she, like, just starts jabbing this thing up like a I guess a hair pick like up her vagina to like try and kill this oh, thing oh my god and it went on for like 10 times longer than in, like something like that would have in a movie and that's just an example of this movie's boldness like it's just it takes something super uncomfortable and like makes you look at it and like I don't know like I kind of felt like somebody was grabbing my head <laughs> and just like being like watch it watch it while I was like watching a lot of like scenes like that in this film and I do like the way it does play with gender once you get to that half of the film where the main character's um, pulling a yentl. <laughs> um, it's almost like the opposite of toxic masculinity, right? Because like, yes. mm-hmm. she starts the film as this sociopathic serial killer, um, and then she goes in hiding as a man. Mm-hmm. And through the sort of brutality of macho... Um, social rituals she like learns to love another person Mm -hmm. it's a very fucking excruciating journey for her to appreciate another person but uh, by the end she gets there and it's through like what we would normally call like toxic macho rituals yeah but but the the rituals were macho but i feel the the father figure the fake dad that she has 
I mean, this guy is just jacked up full of steroids. <laughs> like, yes. you know, he is like head fireman. I mean, he's like the most macho thing in the world, mm-hmm. but like he is so protective over his fake son and isn't afraid to show embrace or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And that kind of made me question how like, especially American men, like don't show emotion. Like, you know, fathers don't embrace their sons like mothers do. And watching that done here, you know, I could, God, I'm like, there's probably so many people that are like, oh, yeah, that's so weird. Like, he's trying to fuck his son, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, that's just like what other people do in different cultures. Like, you know, it's very French, you know, love your children, embrace them. I loved the Vincent Lindon's character. And because it was just like pure, unconditional love. Like, and there's Mm -hmm. a scene where um, the character is in the closet wearing this yellow dress, like trying this yellow dress on of the, right. the dead mothers. And then he walks in and sees his son wearing this dress and he kind of laughs. And I wasn't totally sure what he was thinking, if he was going to ridicule his son. And then he brings out this photo album and shows a photo of his son, like very young, wearing the same dress. And he says, like, nobody can tell me that you're not my son. And it's just like the laugh was this recognition of, like, yes, this is my beautiful son, even though it's not actually his son. Right. It was just nice that he would say that to his son if that was Mm -hmm. his son. Right. Doing that. Yeah. Yeah. He's a model father. Yeah. I mean, no, he really. (laughs) I mean, minus the steroids. (laughs) Well, whatever, the steroids. But, like, the thing. (laughs) I know that I loved about this is like, as someone that kind of and Brandon, I think is sort of the same way. Like we came up watching like exploitation films. Like I want to seek out the most fucked up movie that exists. And like, this is in that same wheelhouse, but with essentially like a Disney message of just like acceptance and love. And I don't know if I've seen a movie do it this effectively. We're on its surface. It's one thing. It's like body horror, exploitation, shock cinema. And at its heart, it's like a Disney message of just like to be a great father or a great parent, you accept your Mm -hmm. kid for who they are and you love them unconditionally. And I don't, I've never seen a movie pull off those two things this well. And that's what really like stood out to me. Yeah, their dynamic is genuinely sweet. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Uh, as excruciating as, you know, their relationships with their own bodies are and as difficult as it is to for them to get on the same page and like actually believe themselves and believe each other and their like mm-hmm. father-son dynamic. Mm-hmm. Once they can connect, like getting past the boundaries of the body and the boundaries of what their relationship structure is, once they actually connect, it's like genuinely heartwarming yeah. um and yeah that's a very odd effect for a movie that could just be a series of stunts that are like supposed to gross you out yeah. mm-hmm. which i honestly felt with raw as well like that's a movie that a lot of people talk about like it's so fucked up people um passed out at the screenings of it no like, it's they about passed family out barf bags. you know it's like that's yeah. what she's doing as a filmmaker and it's so interesting mm-hmm well, and the things that she's talking about, like, are this extreme, like, yeah, the boundaries of your gender identity and your like body changing with puberty and just these like social barriers we have between us 
it is hard to like get past that stuff and it does feel excruciating. Yeah. So she's kind of being realistic about it, even though she's blowing it up to a Cronenbergian extreme. Right. It's like actually more honest about, you know, the human psyche than most movies dealing with those same kind of found family subjects would bother depicting on screen. And that final, the final birthing scene where he just comes to her and gets on her level, like it felt like transcendent in that connection. Mm -hmm. It was just, you cannot go any farther than watching your daughter's son's like flesh rip apart in chrome giving birth to this this baby it was just mm-hmm. like it felt like the most like tender love i've seen depicted for a very long time yeah it's like a fairy tale so ending like he gets a yeah. son I and mean, it really was like a disney fairy tale but in the most <laughs> fucked up <laughs> Like the most fucked up, you know, exterior, but the heart of the film is good. And I feel like a lot of male directors that do this like shock cinema thing, it's all about the exterior. Like, just look at these horrible images we're putting out there. And I I like her films like really are about the most important stuff in the world. I mean, there's also horrific stuff going on on the on the surface and yeah that that dynamic is like enthralling and it is bold and it's Mm -hmm. like pretty cutting edge i'm really excited to see what she does in the future yeah and it's you know she is toe-to-toe with male directors for how uncomfortable some of those goes there yeah like the the scene where she's trying to give herself an abortion like i could not i had to parse my like put my eyes behind interlaced fingers and then like when she's making out with this chick and she's like like licking her breast and she has a a piercing and she's like biting i mean even that that i mean this the body horror is so extreme but even that like you know mm-hmm. i could feel the pain from the other girl it was just like yeah it was hard very hard to watch at some points I feel like people have one or two reactions to this, like one or the other. You're either going to find that extremity of violence, like for its own sake and just kind of like provocation for no reason, Mm -hmm. or you find it like very cathartic and it's actually like opening these wounds so that they can heal properly. And uh, yeah, it sounds like we all connected to it on an emotional level on top of it just being like a stunt film. Like it's very easy to describe this movie as, you know, this really fucked up movie where this lady has sex with a car. Which mm-hmm. I feel like is so reductive because there's so much else going on, especially by the end. Like it, right. the heart is really big, uh, even if the details sound really—I don't want to say silly, but sound really just novelty focused. Right. Yeah. I and I also just love how movies too like this show like how horrific pregnancy. Is. Oh my god! <laughs> like you know, I think every you know everyone's like, oh, it's such a beautiful thing, and women who don't look at pregnancy that way always feel a little guilty, like. You know, there are some women I've spoken with who've been pregnant. They were like, yeah, I fucking hated it the whole time. And I just wanted that thing out of me. It was like terrifying because it takes Mm. over your body. Yeah. And I kind of felt like this played more towards that. Like literally her, oh, like when her stomach was like ripping open to show like this like metal and the leaking of the oil and how she was just constantly like in pain and just like wanted this thing out of her. (laughs) Yeah. Ugh. It's definitely not an easy watch, uh, but uh, no. I, I'm 
not really surprised that it did enough to make it so high in all of our yeah. lists because it does feel mm-hmm. like a very Swamp Flicks movie. Oh, totally. Um, <laughs> it's a beautiful film. It's probably the most beautiful film that we've talked about today. And, you know. Some of those shots of just the firemen dancing together, <laughs> like some of those visually pleasing. God, absolutely. Images. Oh, and that scene where the, the father, put, he like puts on the, is it the cranberries or the zombies? Like he puts on this song and he starts, the zombies, yeah, the zombies, yeah. he starts dancing. And I was like, what, what is it? What movie is this? What is going on? <laughs> I don't know. I like, I loved his performance. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I liked him since I saw him in La Moustache, but like, I don't know. In this film, he carries, I think a lot of the emotional weight of the story. And like, I don't know if you're asking me like, who's like a model father, in a film you saw in 2021, it would be him. Like, that's a good mm-hmm. dad right there. And that's like the kind of dad we should all strive to mm-hmm. be. Except maybe not jacked right. up on right steroids. But I don't know. I like, right, right. I, know, I noticed um, just looking at my, just kind of everyone's list, but like in my top films, it was like, I was just thinking about this one, Pig, Writers of Justice. It's like bizarre, sort of surreal stories that don't quite fit into one genre but that have like a lot of fucking heart and that are like really emotionally impacting and i i don't know i'm glad that titane is like gonna be our number Mm -hmm. one because i think it perfectly symbolizes that this thing that like on its surface should not make you feel you know as deeply as you end up by the end of the movie like that's pretty great filmmaking well we are going to be focused on the very best movies of the year throughout the month. I'm going to post James's top 20 in the show notes for this episode. Everyone else will post their individual list as the month goes on and we'll eventually have a consensus for the very best movies of the year. I suspect Pig and Titan will maintain their reign at the top of those lists. Yes. I'd be surprised if they were knocked down. In the meantime, on the next episode of this show... Uh, We're going to take a quick break from the top films of 2021. We're going to watch My Winnipeg, uh, me and Mm. (laughs) uh, Allie and Boomer. What? uh, I love that movie, man. Oh, Yeah, probably Guy Madden's most popular film, like his most beloved. Dude, it's so good. I'm excited to watch it. I I like his stuff, and I don't know how I've missed that one. It's so good. I will let everyone know how I think. I will publish my (laughs) thoughts on the internet. It's fucking hilarious, (laughs) dude. You're going to have a ball. I'm excited. And then after that, uh, the four of us will get back together, hopefully in person, depending on how everyone's health right. holds up in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> and we'll talk about some honorable mentions that we didn't get to today, because 26 movies is not enough. <laughs> uh, More movies. <laughs> Google gobble, Google gobble. Uh, <laughs> all right. We'll talk to you all soon. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.